Braves and baseball fans, it's time to take a trip from coast to coast across Major League Baseball. There it goes, a long drive. If it stays fair, home run. One strike away. Sandy into his windup. Here's the pitch. Swung out and missed a perfect game. Fly ball deep left center. Grissom on the run. Yes, yes, yes. Braves and baseball talk straight from the diamond. Here's Grant McCauley. Hello and welcome into another episode of From the Diamond. As always, I am Grant McCauley, and we are closing out the year 2023. Ringing in the new year, and then it's full speed ahead for spring training, which is only about six weeks away. Well, let me just tell you, we have got plenty to talk about on this edition of the show. I had something big planned for you for quite some time, but then Alex Anthopoulos decided that this weekend, in the lead up to New Year's Eve, well, it was a great time to make another trade, and the Braves got Chris Sale from the Boston Red Sox. We're going to talk all about that on this edition of the show. Once we get through that, I've got a collection of some of the greatest stories and conversations I had on From the Diamond from the entire year of 2023. And I've got a great lineup that includes some Braves legends and Hall of Famers, the likes of Tom Glavin and John Smoltz, Dale Murphy and Ron Gant, Jeff Rancourt, Chip Carey, Brandon Gauden, and Braves manager Brian Snitker. You'll also be hearing from Alex Anthopoulos on the Chris Sale trade. That is coming your way here in a moment. Before we get started with all of that, I want to remind you to subscribe to From the Diamond wherever you get your podcasts. If you would be so kind, I'm always trying to grow the show. Leave a rating and a review wherever you are subscribed to From the Diamond. Be sure to share the show with a friend and connect with me on social media. You can find me on most platforms at Grant McCauley. And if you need links to any and everything I've got going on, FromTheDiamond.com is the place for that. Before we get to everything else I had planned for this show, we got to talk about a trade. We couldn't get out of 2023 and one of the busiest off-seasons that I can remember without Alex Anthopoulos and company making one more deal. And this one, I think, was long-awaited, at least for what the Braves got in return. As we went into the winter, I think the Braves needed to get two starting pitchers. One of those, it felt like, was going to be Charlie Morton, just based on the fact they had that option. And if Charlie wanted to pitch, I felt like the Braves were going to want him back. Once that deal got done, Atlanta still had a need in the rotation, particularly for a veteran, somebody proven, to help solidify this group a bit more than it was a year ago. So the Braves canvassed far and wide. I felt like looking at free agents, of course, they're discussing trades, many of which we'll never know what those talks were. But as far as the free agency side of things was concerned, the Braves had legitimate interest in Aaron Nola. Sonny Gray was another name that was being tossed around. But once those two guys came off the board... I started to think that maybe the answer to this question for whoever the Braves were going to trade for is going to end up being somebody that really isn't being discussed altogether that much, if at all, in connection to what the Braves were looking for. And we heard ceaseless commentary about the Braves' interest in Dylan Cease and what that fit might be for the rotation. Who's to say what could happen in the future? But when you started to think about the prospect price for getting Dylan Cease, it just didn't seem to be the most likely fit and the most likely answer, at least in the short term. So the Braves announced on Saturday that they made a trade with the Boston Red Sox, getting left-hander Chris Sale in cash considerations, which we found out was about $17 million, in exchange for infielder Vaughn Grissom, a man who we've talked about a lot over the past couple of years, and a player who was looking, I think, for an opportunity to finally break through at the big league level and get an everyday job. 
So this trade helps the Braves in their rotation. It gives Von Grissom a new start and that new chance with the Boston Red Sox. But as far as the sale contract was concerned, we knew he was due to make $27.5 million in 2024. He also has a vesting option for $20 million in 2025. The Red Sox sending a reported $17 million in cash considerations brought that down to about $10.5 million. Then, if you look at Chris Sale's deal that he signed back in 2019 with the Red Sox, that five-year extension also included a lot of deferred money to the tune of $10 million a year. So the Braves, in getting Chris Sale, even though this will count against the luxury tax differently, the $10 million that he's owed does not have to be paid until 2039. So Atlanta has Chris Sale in what I believe is about as low a risk proposition as you can possibly get, considering the health issues that he has had and those that we'll delve into. But what are the Braves getting in Chris Sale? That's a question that will be answered in 2024. But if he's able to stay healthy, the Braves believe that they've gotten somebody who can pitch for them in the postseason and solidify that rotation in a way that no in-house candidate was capable of doing. Now, Chris Sale has been one of the best pitchers in baseball over the course of his career, but the last five seasons, that's been a bit of a different story. After finishing in the top five of the Cy Young voting in the American League for six consecutive seasons from 2013 to 2018, Sale signed an extension with the Boston Red Sox in 2019. Sale has dealt with a litany of injuries, arm and otherwise, over the past five seasons that has kept him off the mound and unable to put up the gaudy numbers that he did in the start of his career. Last year with Boston, he went 6-5 with a 4.30 ERA in 20 starts, the first time that he had made 20 starts and thrown 100 or more innings since 2019, but he did show he's still got that strikeout stuff, 125 of those against 29 walks and 102 and two-thirds innings pitched. And if you're into this sort of thing, Sale is the all-time leader in strikeouts per nine among starting pitchers in baseball history. So he's got the accolades. And again, a multiple-time Cy Young Award finalist, a two-time strikeout leader, a World Series champion with the Red Sox in 2018, an intense competitor. And I think that's another thing that the Braves are happy to have in the fold moving into 2024 and looking for ways to make the club a little bit better, a little bit more complete than it was even a season ago. Atlanta has dealt with starting pitching injuries year after year after year, particularly in October. They dealt with it in 2020. In 2021, despite getting all the way down to just two legitimate starting pitchers, well, they won the World Series. Then in 2022, you dealt with a sick Max Freed, Spencer Strider with an oblique injury. And in 2023, again, there were questions about Freed and his ability to be ready for the postseason. Kyle Wright was not in the picture, and Charlie Morton had a finger injury that kept him off the mound. Now, there's absolutely no way to guarantee that injuries aren't going to crop up again. But the Braves wanted to prepare themselves with as many good options as they can heading into spring training, which includes a litany of young arms and, of course, the option in the trade deadline, or during the season at least, to add to their pitching if they see that as a definite need. Now, Alex Antopoulos discussed the deal to acquire Chris Sale, what the cost was in trading away Vaughn Grissom, what they believe they have with Chris Sale, how he fits into the rotation, and where he feels like the team is at this point in the offseason heading towards spring training. Let's hear a few comments from the Braves GM. Obviously, we reviewed the medical, and our medical staff felt good about it. But look, there's health history, and I understand that that's going to be a topic. But, you know, we like him when he's out on the mound, and we love the makeup and, and the person and what he brings to the clubhouse. And you know, we think he's a, a playoff caliber starter, and that's what we were in the market for if we could acquire that this offseason, uh, someone that we felt could start playoff games for us. And, you know, we'll make sure to do what we can to keep him on the mound, and we'll get to know him. And I think like we've done with a lot of our guys. We've done a good job getting guys rest between starts and so on. And, you know, that's something that we'll just evaluate as time goes on as we get to know him. 
That's a disgust. There's a dominance that Chris Sale can bring to the starting rotation, but his injury history is something that's hard to overlook. How does Alex Anthopoulos feel the veteran left-hander is trending heading into 2024? You know, the last few years, you know, he's had IL time and so on. And so that's, you know, you can't run from that. You realize that. But, you know, we feel like this is, you know, the first normal offseason he'll have had in a long time. But at the same time, look, he's coming off a 100-innings pitch last year. So we'll still be mindful of that. And like we do with all of our starters, we don't put any limits on anybody, but we do take it day to day. You know, if guys need to skip bullpens, if guys need extra days between starts, yeah. this is a very good job. If you give guys, you know, maybe he doesn't have guys go as deep in a game, certain starts, depending on how things are going. So, you know, we don't have any hard and fast rules, but, you know, I look back to when we acquired Charlie Morton is that last year in Tampa I was, he was the COVID year. He missed a month with shoulder issues and came back in the postseason and did a nice job. And for the most part, other than the finger injury last year, I think he stayed off the IL entirety of his career so that's not to say that you know we're not going to have starters go on the il that's not realistic when you pitch but i do think we do a good job that our medical staff does a good job and we'll do everything we can to help all of our guys but look there's no doubt that's part of the acquisition cost and no one can guarantee anything right so it's just something that you either sign off on or you don't but you realize any anyone you acquire there's risk right no one can guarantee health for anybody you know at the end of the day ultimately you still you're going to take on an element of risk, you know, and that's ultimately that's for the front office to make that determination. So sometimes it works, sometimes it does not. We've had guys be injured before and that's part of it, right? That's the reality of it. So, but you know, at the end of the day, when we factored everything in, um, it was a, a shot that we wanted to take, you know, we really like his ability. We love the makeup and the person and what he brings to our clubhouse. Now you guys know that, that that's a big deal for us. And that was a very important part of this. Uh, we think he's an absolute perfect fit with our group. And we think when he's out on the mound, he's a playoff caliber starter. So, you know, we'll get to know him and we'll do everything we can to put him in the best position to stay healthy and have success. With a trade for Chris Sale, the Braves have now addressed every area of need that they had heading into this offseason. That includes the starting rotation, the bullpen, and getting a new left fielder. As for what's ahead over the final month and a half before spring training, Alex Anthopoulos said, like anything, he's going to keep an open mind. If you guys would have asked me, I wouldn't have thought sitting on December 30th and we would have completed a deal. So, you know, the off season, you just never, I know people are always like, oh, are you done? Are you still doing stuff? I just don't view it, you know, other than the day after the World Series, that's really the official start of the off season. There's no end of it, right? Because there's still things that happen in spring training. So, I think as long as people are engaged and players are still out there, just keep an open mind. So, look, I, I mean, I said this even in the past. You know, we thought we had a good club a month ago, two months ago. We liked our team. We thought we have a really good team. That doesn't mean you can't get better and doesn't mean you're going to stop trying, whether that's now or that's at the trade deadline. So we still have time in the offseason. It does. You now, once you get the spring training, that does seem to be the official where it seems to end, but there's still, you know, some guys that are out there at times and there's still trades that happen at the end of spring, right? Guys have out, guys are out of options and so on. So we'll just keep an open mind if things present themselves. Heading the other way in this deal was 22-year-old Vaughn Grissom, a player who exploded onto the scene in 2022 with some memorable moments and helped the Braves deal with the loss of Ozzie Albies that season. Coming into 2023, a lot of people expected Grissom to win the starting shortstop job. When that didn't happen, he went back to Triple A Gwinnett, put up some big numbers at the plate, but was still a man without a position for the Braves at the major league level. Now with the Boston Red Sox, Grissom will get that opportunity to find every day at bats. But Alex Anthopoulos said, as is the case with many trades, it's difficult to part with players you like. Yeah, it was tough. It was, um, 
one of the harder guys to move, just the person I called him directly. I think so highly of him. I know everyone in our organization does. I think Red Sox fans, coaches, staff, media, of the above. And I think, you know, for the Atlanta meet on this, I think they will would echo what it says. You're not going to find a better human being. The makeup is as good as it gets. High energy player makes people around them better. Can flat hit tremendous bats of ball skills. We were obviously having him play a little bit in the outfield just to you know, find more at bats for him because he's absolutely ready to be an everyday player at the big league level right now. And this is a great opportunity for him in his career. So I don't want to speak for the Red Sox and their plans for him, but, now, my understanding is he'll get a great opportunity there. But look, we, you know, we're in a position where we were trying to get a starter. And yeah, I would have loved to have done a deal for less. I would have loved to have kept them and traded somebody else. It just that wasn't going to happen in our conversation. So, you know, and this is this this is for those that know Von Grissom, they'll definitely agree. This is Von Grissom to a T. When I told him, you know, we we're trying to get a starter and he was the guy that had to go the other way that the Red Sox are pretty adamant about it. You know, he, what he told me was I could pitch Alex, you know, and that's Vaughn, you know, and he's a joker and serious at the same time, but you know, he will do everything. So he's going to be a fantastic fit there. Uh, it's a painful one because of how highly we view him, but it's a much better fit for his career. But again, you have to give to get. So yeah, ideally, you keep all the players you love and move the other ones, but we weren't going to be able to get a guy like Chris Sale unless Vaughn was the guy going the other way. It's a big opportunity for Vaughn Grissom joining a new team, but as for the newest Atlanta Brave, I had a chance to ask Alex Anthopoulos how he felt like Chris Sale was going to fit in. Hey, Alex, similar question about Chris Sale, your conversations with him, the initial ones, uh, how excited is he about this new opportunity, this new chapter for him? Yeah, he was great. We had done so much work on the person, just talked to teammates, people, and people just absolutely rave about this guy. As a teammate, as a person, he started thinking about, even though, obviously, Charlie's been around a long time, but even, you know, Max is still young in his career. Obviously, Strider's still young, Ian Anderson and Noah, and all these other young guys. He's just having somebody else, you know, we beyond what Charlie Morton brings, we love what he brings to the room and the clubhouse, and having another guy who's been through a lot. I think it only makes, you know, I'm a big believer in players make others around them better. They have a certain type of makeup and character. And all the work we did on Chris Sale was just people rave about the person, the work ethic, the competitor, the teammate. So I told him that. I told him it's a huge part of what we do. It's a huge part of players that we bring in. You know, I, I don't want to say it's, you know, it's you know, obviously ability and what he does on the mound is the priority. But that other piece and the makeup and the clubhouse fit is not far behind. So knowing he can just come in and be himself and go about things the way he always has. I think it's going to be a fantastic fit and he's excited. He lives in Naples. So he's not far from our complex and he was already asking me about when he can go and throw. He's already thrown bullpens and you know, he was already, he's ready to, uh, to continue to prepare for spring. So he was excited and we're excited to have him. One of the interesting things I think about acquiring Chris Sale at this point and might fly under the radar for a lot of folks is that when you flash back to the rebuild, there were certain starting pitchers that were talked about as the arms the Braves needed to go out and get in order to get back to winning, get back to October, get back to respectability in general. Chris Sale was one of those arms. Jose Quintana was another one. Sonny Gray was one. Chris Archer was another one. Those seemed to be the arms that everybody talked about, that if the Braves, with their top-ranked farm system, were going to trade away prospects, they needed to go out and get these pitchers. Now, we all know what has happened. In hindsight, it's not available for GMs to make all of their moves. But Chris Sale, despite having some immediate success with the Boston Red Sox, we just kind of documented what his run looked like there. 
Jose Quintana was not the same pitcher after the White Sox traded him away. Sonny Gray has had some ups and downs and just signed a new deal with the St. Louis Cardinals coming off one of the best years of his career. And Chris Archer is not pitching anymore. So if you do flashback and think about the time that these trades were being talked about in 2016 and 2017 in particular, and what that prospect cost would have been, we're talking about Dansby Swanson, Ozzy Albies, maybe Max Fried, Austin Riley. Who's to say who would have been in some of these deals? And I don't think we'd be sitting here talking about a World Series championship and six consecutive National League East titles if the Braves had cashed in a bunch of their prospects for any two of those particular pitchers. So sometimes the best deals you make are the ones you don't. So the Braves remain the busiest team this winter across Major League Baseball. They just keep making moves. But 2023 brought us a lot of great stories in Braves baseball, even if the final chapter that won in October wasn't the one that people were looking for. Here on From the Diamond, I had a chance to talk to so many folks throughout the course of the season, and I wanted to present some of the best of those to you right here on this episode, the best of From the Diamond in 2023. So let's start off with a story from early in the year, one that got everyone's attention because the Braves, well, they got themselves a brand new uniform. The City Connect version of the Atlanta Braves uniform was unveiled by Nike, the team wearing that throughout the course of the season, and it paid homage to one of the Braves' classic looks, the 1974s, as they've come to be known, a uniform that debuted in the decade of the 70s and was steeped in tradition because it's associated with Hank Aaron, who broke baseball's home run record in 1974. So let's flash back to April and the debut of the Atlanta Braves' City Connect uniform. So how exactly did this uniform come to be? Well, to get inside the process of creating this, I caught up with Insung Kim, who's a Braves VP and creative director, to get an idea of how exactly the Braves arrived on a City Connect that pays a lot of respects to a previous jersey design, one that is, I think, equal parts iconic and very recognizable for the Atlanta Braves, if not for Henry Aaron himself. So here's my conversation with Insung, who gave me a lot of time and a lot of insights on how exactly the Braves City Connects came to be. We're here with Insung Kim, VP and Creative Director for the Atlanta Braves, on what is, I think, an exciting weekend. Anytime you get to introduce a little something new into the lexicon, or I guess in this case, into the uniform of a Major League Baseball club, fans are going to get a chance to get their hands on something new and exciting. In this case, maybe something a little bit classic in the midst of all of that. The City Connect uniforms debuted on Saturday night. What was your impression of the debut? And then I want to talk a little bit about the creation of the City Connects. Yeah, when I first saw the uniforms on field for the first time tonight, I was uh, I was almost in tears. They looked so beautiful. They turned out so nice. There was uh, a lot of hard work between um, you know our team and the Nike design team and just everybody on our um, on our staff. We were just so proud of this uniform and the way it turned out. So uh, it was really nice to see the, the players take the field in them for the first time today. I got to hear from Braves manager Brian Snitker before the game, and one of the big things that stands out about this and one of the big things that stands out about the Atlanta Braves franchise is the connection, the legacy with Henry Aaron, who was the home run king as of April the 8th, 1974. This is a very familiar uniform because it takes a lot of nods and notes from that uniform. How important was that when designing the Atlanta Braves City Connect? It was really important for us to make sure that um, you know we recognized um, you know the home run king Hank Aaron um, in the design. And um, you know once a year during Hank Aaron Week, we wear the '74 throwbacks, or we have been, and we love seeing them. The players love wearing them, and we wanted to give the fans and the players what they wanted. And um, 
you know, we love hearing from the fans and non-Braves fans about how these are the best-looking uniforms in all of baseball, and yeah. you know, and we agree. So, you know, why not wear them more often? And we saw City Connect as the perfect opportunity to do that, and now we wear them every Saturday night in home games. So, a great opportunity to honor something that's been a big part of the Atlanta Braves for over four decades now, but also new and refreshed. So, when you walk into a meeting with Nike Creatives or whoever it was, or even just maybe in your mind, kind of looking at it as a blank canvas. How did you start to formulate or come up with the ideas that would eventually become the City Connect? How many people, I guess, had a hand in that? Well, there was a small group of folks on the Braves side that work with the Nike design team. And, um, you know, they ask us questions on, you know, what do you think should be on your City Connect design? Well, well, you know, after discussing internally, we went back to them and said, you know what? It needs to be about Hank Aaron. We need to honor Hank in this design. You know, we also wanted to make sure that we represented Atlanta, our city, with the A on our chest because that's what folks who live here, that's the nickname for Atlanta, it's the A, right? That's what we call it. So uh, we're doing two things in this design. We're recognizing Hank, we're recognizing um, our wonderful city. And we think that it looks beautiful on the field. It looks amazing to see all the fans wearing it in the stands. So we're really proud of it. The Braves have a fan base that stretches from coast to coast, maybe even all around the world. And being in homes from coast to coast for the better part of three or four decades with TBS, I think has made Braves country what it is. So when you talk about a city connect, and I guess the idea of connecting with the city, Braves country is a much bigger place. So Henry Aaron, I think, was the kind of note that really strikes a chord with absolutely everyone. Yeah, yeah. And and that's the thing that's a little bit hard about um, designing a city connect for the Braves because, like you said, we have such a huge fan base all over the country. And also Atlanta itself is a city that's changing and evolving. And, you know, it's not there's all the cliches of uh, what people think about Atlanta, hot Atlanta or peaches. But, you know, that's not exactly what it is. People who live here know that it's a more complicated and more um you know, more modern city. And we wanted this uniform to reflect that, that it's a, it's a nod to our past, but at the same time, it's a modern take on it. So you'll see very modern cues in the design to the updated sleeve design, to the script A on the front. So it's a modern take on a classic uniform. So as you talk to the Nike crew and the Nike design team, did they bring ideas to the table? Were there a lot of different prototypes out there before you got to this one? Or was this just one that you were able to just organically come to without really having to go through a whole bunch of different tries? You know, uh, just like any design process, there's a lot of uh, editing and a lot of um, things that end up on the cutting room floor. So yeah, there were some designs that didn't make the cut, obviously. But when we went to them, we told them the main concept that we wanted and they came back to us and showed us, you know, three to five different designs that reflected that concept and and um, I think we landed on the one that everybody was happy with. I think a question I'm curious about as far as City Connect is concerned is this something that has like a certain amount of time that it'll be in service or is it something that will be in service until somebody decides hey we're gonna make a new City Connect? Uh, that's right it's a three-year program so we'll okay. be uh, we'll, we'll have these uh, designs for the next three years and then on to the next design so it's a long process and we'll come up with something really cool and innovative. Well, the Braves have no shortage of classic uniforms. The 1974s, I think, always excite people when they get to see them. I know I've talked to players. Brian Snitker, as I mentioned earlier, he always likes putting on that old-style uniform. So this one really able to kind of be the best of both worlds, if you will. Are there other designs that you've seen just from kind of going through maybe the Braves' uniform history of this club that might be the kinds of uniforms that you might draw some creative impetus from going forward absolutely but i don't want to spoil anything so i'm not going to say anything however there are some really cool designs in our past you know we have the powder blue we have the the pinstripes we have the 80s with a 
with a red, white, and blue. So we have no shortage of design, uh, uniform designs to pull from. And, you know, maybe we'll do something different next time. Who knows? Yeah, as a child of the 80s, I've been lobbying long and hard just to what, maybe just one time those red, white, and blues, those home whites again one more time. But I also tweeted right before spring training started, hey, if you want to solve the City Connect problem, here are the 1974s. I had no idea it was going to be so literal and figurative and I think you guys really struck a great chord with this again. And thanks for the time and for sharing some of the insight that was behind creating the Brave City Connect with me. Thanks. Appreciate it. Another big story from early in the season was the changes to Major League Baseball's rules. A lot of folks, myself included, thought that maybe this was going to be a little bit more obvious throughout the course of the year. But as time went on, it just kind of started to blend in. It's not to say that this brand of baseball wasn't different than the one we saw before as far as pace of play is concerned but we definitely saw the effects of those rules changes in both the time of game, whittling down nearly half an hour year over year, and of course the uh, stolen base numbers were up, and nobody was taking a bigger advantage of those than the National League's MVP Ronald Acuna Jr. His aggressiveness on the base paths not only led to a new Braves modern-day record of 73 stolen bases, but that was the most across MLB in 2023 as well, and the most in a single season in baseball in 26 years. With one month under our belts in late April, I had a chance to have ESPN's Jeff Passan on the show to talk about those rules changes and get his thoughts about what the effects were going to be, both in the short term and the long term. Here's my conversation with Jeff Passan. I'm thrilled to have Jeff join the program right now to talk about some of the big things going on across Major League Baseball as we close out the first month of the year. And as we do that, I think it's a great time to check out some of the early trends. And Jeff, you wrote a great column about a trend that no one really wants to see at any time of the year. And that, of course, is a spike in injuries that are happening to open the season. What do you feel like is contributing to a lot of the IL stints we're seeing here in the early going? You know, Grant, I think it's a number of different factors, some that portend long-term issues, some that have shorter term implications but the fact that over the first 20 days of the season between the beginning of spring training and the first 20 days of the season uh injury rates spiked more than 25 percent from any previous year on record uh it's a bad sign and i i think it's a confluence of number one you have more players coming into the sport who have been injured in the past and the greatest predictor particularly of a future arm injury is a past arm injury. I think it's the fact that uh, players are designing their own pitches these days and that the max effort stress and strain that's put on arms because of that pitch design, it's not always problematic, but it can be problematic. Uh, I don't at all discount the idea that the pitch clock is partially responsible. Mm. If you look at the idea of fatigue and the amount of downtime between pitches contributing to a player's health uh that's a huge factor potentially but i think there are plenty of guys also who work fast and are doing just fine and i i also think it's a weird year because the world baseball classic you have not just edwin diaz and jose altuve getting hurt at the wbc but uh, you have a lot of guys who have been put in position in spring training to throw more meaningful innings and because of that Probably not a huge factor, but certainly not something we can look at and say there's no way this has anything to do with what's going on in baseball right now. Yeah, that's a really good point. And while these injuries are certainly you know, disconcerting and you never want to see them, there's never a good time for one, but there's also it's hard to track down what could be the root cause because of so many other factors you just laid out. We are seeing the pitch clock, though, have a dramatic effect on the game, I think, as it's whittled down the time of game to its fastest average in just, what, over 40 years, I believe I read in your column. 
And I know yeah, that's been, all. Uh, yeah, just, <laughs> just you know, just forty years. Every forty years or so, we might make an improvement. But you know, I know that's looked upon by most people and a lot of fans probably as a net positive that the game's moving faster. But do you think there are times? I mean, and aside from the injury component that you just brought up, but and I'm thinking particularly late in games where the pace of play can be or should be almost secondary to the drama that should be playing out in real time, whatever that real time may be. You know, I personally, like, I understand that argument. I think the premise is a little false, though, because Mm -hmm. does that not presuppose that 40 years ago, late-inning drama didn't exist or wasn't quite the same as it is now? I feel like the drama is in the score. The drama Mm -hmm. is in the matchup. Mm -hmm. And the speed of it doesn't necessarily make it that much better. Now, you can argue that, yeah, there's a little slow burn element and... You know, it increases the tension. But uh, as somebody who is just fascinated by the one-on-one matchups in baseball, I like the idea of a pitcher saying, you know what, I'm going to give you my best stuff right now. Mm -hmm. Go ahead and hit it. And whether it's an accelerated pace or a slow pace, I think the, the inherent core of that remains. And because of that, I'm personally okay with it. I look at the game right now, and this was in the aforementioned column by you. To me, the most interesting part is not a whole lot has changed from five years ago other than the time of game. And that was really interesting to me. The batting average is within a point. The on-base percentage, within a point. Slugging percentage, within two points. Same walk rate. Strikeout rate is practically identical. You know, ERA, fielding independent pitching numbers, like – Everything is the same as 2018, except it's 29 minutes shorter. And the argument I think that can be made there why that's a good thing is that even though the action is very similar as to what it was back five years ago, mm-hmm. it's packed into a tighter time frame. And because of that, the action is more frequent. You don't have to wait four minutes in between every batted ball. Yeah, that's a really good point. And I think about some particular matchups, like a hitter like Juan Soto, it seemed like he is very much wanting to dictate his pace and and have that control of that at bat. Then I think of, and it's just an example, but a pitcher who's deliberate is Kinley Jansen that we saw in Atlanta last year, and there are others. But when you do think about if those two guys are going to square off in the ninth inning, but you kind of strip away the aspect of maybe being able to control the clock, which is a really weird thing to say about baseball because we've never really said it before. It's just, it's very fascinating as you were pointing out kind of the game within the game, but also just trying to speed that up and deliver the action quicker. Yeah. And while Juan Soto has struggled this year, Kenley Jansen's been pretty great for the Red Sox. So I, I mean, it just goes to show that this is only Well, now I take that back. It's not only a mental adjustment. I think it's mostly a mental adjustment. The physical element, especially if you're a hitter, it's really the same game. It's just at a quicker pace. And you know what? I watch a lot of high school baseball these days, Mm -hmm. and if there was a pitch clock, there would not be any violations because the kids deliver the ball and the hitters are ready. And so in a way, I think it takes you back to the game you grew up playing. And as romantic a sport grants as baseball is i don't think it's necessarily ever a bad thing when you get taken back to your youth and can remember fondly those days 
Yeah, no, I would 100% agree with that. And I know I've been hearing this saying a lot lately, and I've brought it up on my show quite a bit. Nobody likes change, but people do like improvement. And if that's something that's happening for the sport through this, then perhaps this is overall a net positive beyond just the time. I don't want to let you get out of here without asking about one of the big stories around Atlanta for the last calendar year or so, and that's Spencer Strider. I know you enjoy watching this guy pitch as well. We all do. What do you feel like makes this guy so above and beyond special every time he takes them out? The Braves were in Kansas City probably about 10 days ago or so now, and I had never met Spencer Strider. I was fascinated by him, by his worldview, by his approach by the way he goes about his business on the mound. And we talked for an hour and it felt like five minutes. Uh, he's just such an interesting human being. Not, mm-hmm. not just like interesting baseball player. He's just like a dude I want to hang out with and, and listen to talk because the, the way he approaches life is fascinating. It's, it's really interesting to me about him and why I think he's so great. His brain organizes itself in a very objective fashion like he looks at the world almost algorithmically Mm -hmm. and i think that he has the efficiency of his game is that he recognizes what he does really well and he's gone about trying to perfect it and he puts in immense amounts of effort both physically and mentally to doing so yeah and it just gets back to this idea grant know thyself Mm-hmm. And I think Spencer Strider knows himself extremely well, and that's what allows him to get the best version of himself. Yeah, I would agree with that, and that's kind of a tenet you can live life by and have a lot of success with, and something that Spencer Strider always seems to be, and I know it's something he said back in spring training, find a way to be 1% better today than I was yesterday. And when you throw 100 miles an hour, I don't know if you can find a mile an hour every day, but you can certainly find ways to make that thing work. And he's done it time and time again. Jeff, I really appreciate all of your time. Uh, Obviously, everyone out there is well aware that they can follow you, find all the big MLB stories and great columns on ESPN.com throughout the course of baseball season. And you keep us busy and keep us nice and warm around the hot stove. Jeff, I really appreciate the time. Look forward to chatting with you again soon. Pleasure is mine, Grant. Thanks for having me. A moment that stands out in a sea of very fun moments and highlights for this Braves club in 2023 was one particular night in early June. The Braves and Mets were battling it out on Sunday Night Baseball, and Bally Sports, well, they brought together four Braves greats for a players-only booth and broadcast, and it easily became an instant classic. I had a chance to talk with Jeff Francoeur, with Tom Glavin, and later with John Smoltz about how much fun it was to team up with Chipper Jones and call a baseball game and maybe just have a little bit of a reunion for themselves as well. So let's flash back to the night that it was time to pour Larry a crown. A completely and totally different and unique kind of broadcast that Bally Sports brought to us that included several former Braves, a handful of Hall of Famers, and a fan favorite, and they all combined for what I thought was one of the most entertaining three hours you'll spend watching a baseball game. Chipper Jones, John Smoltz, Tom Glavin, and Jeff Francoeur were all in the booth for the Braves for Bally Sports in what was not only a well-executed, but incredibly well-produced and well-thought-out concept that I think delivered everything Braves fans could have wanted from a television broadcast. But how about this game? I don't think it could have played out much differently than most fans would have imagined when they sat down to watch just based on the starting pitching matchup. You had Spencer Strider on the mound for the Braves. You had Justin Verlander going for the New York Mets. You might have thought, ton of strikeouts. It's going to be hard to score. This is going to be a good old-fashioned pitcher's duel. Maybe it comes down to a battle of the bullpens. That's what I had in mind. 
Then baseball came along and told us we're not going to script it that way. Spencer Strider was done after four innings. He gave up eight runs. Justin Verlander surrendered five runs over three innings. And then we had a wild and crazy game in which the Braves just simply would not stay down. Eventually overcoming the Mets in dramatic fashion, courtesy of Ozzie Albies. Hey, how about Chipper Jones on the final call? And that'll do it! Woo! Start the buses! That audio courtesy of Bally Sports South. You heard Chipper Jones on the call. You heard Jeff Francoeur in the background. Time to pour Larry a crown. You can find the t-shirt. It's already online. But I wanted to catch up with a couple of the guys that were involved in this broadcast and really reflect on just how much fun these guys were having. So I sat down with Jeff Francoeur at Truist Park this week. A lot of opportunities in baseball are presented that you might not have expected to have. And I would imagine sitting down as a kid that grew up watching the Atlanta Braves, played for the Atlanta Braves, then you're sitting next to Chipper, Glavin, and Smoltz, guys that you did play with, but guys you grew up watching. What was it like to call a game with those fellas? It was fun because, you know, obviously when I came to the big leagues, God, man, I watched those guys have their jerseys, wear their shirts, and then you get to play with them and become friends with them, golfing, hanging out and stuff, and really getting to know them. And their personalities. That's why I was so excited last night because I felt like, you know, I, I, I can, I, I feel like I know a little bit of a way to bring out some of their personalities on air. And it was great. I mean, dude, they were so awesome last night. Chipper was so insightful, and I think people got to see another side of him. Continue to see. And I said it. He's the smartest baseball player I ever played with. So to have him up in the booth doing that stuff, I thought was outstanding. I think it's interesting because so many people know Chipper Jones, the player. He brought up Chipper Jones, the broadcaster. When he puts those readers on, it's like he turns into, like, there's another dimension to him. I know his Hall of Fame speech, a lot of the media that he did leading up to that, he kind of started to get to know, maybe fans did, just how cerebral this guy was. But he watches the game, no pun intended, through completely different lenses than most of us. Well, look, at at the Hall of Fame speech up there, I always say Chipper's dad gave the greatest speech talking about the maturation of Chipper when he played to after baseball. And how personable is he now? And he lets people in his life. And, you know, look, I, I was there and saw it. You know, that guy got a lot of demands on him when he played baseball. And he was strictly a baseball player. But he's got off now, like you said last night. I thought he was great talking about the game, the way that they go about it. Yeah. You know, the hitting things, the little things. And then, of course, I think it's just funny when you see the blue glasses, you realize oh, yeah. he's getting a little older, too. It's kind of fun to watch all of that process yeah. of his career to – all of the things he does, I know, behind the scenes well, here for so, the Braves, working with hitters. Man. Yeah. He's so talented, and whether he wants to do that in the booth, you know, I've always said it, the sky's the limit for Chip. Glavin and Smoltz, Smoltz and Glavin, of course, you yeah. got to throw Maddox in there, the phone call that came into the broadcast. Walk me through a little bit about how all of that came together and having Greg Maddox make a cameo in one of the most entertaining broadcasts well, ever. I've said it. Our producer, Gretchen Caney, was a rock star last night. She put all this stuff together. She had Maddox call in. None of us knew Greg was calling in. Uh, she put all that together. She had all those highlights and films of Chipper plowing Maddox over, you know, me and Chipper hitting the ball off Glav, and then, of course, letting Glav come back with the strikeouts on us. You know, so they, they did an unbelievable job, and we got a dream game. You know, when you looked at that game last night, I kept thinking two hours, seven minutes, mm-hmm. 24 strikeouts yeah. in a 2-1 game, and we got the complete opposite. But when we were in the moment last night, it was great to have that time again and the ability to be able to get into stories, get into stuff. And like I said, it was great because we had a lot of funny stuff, there's no doubt. 
But we got a lot of good baseball dialogue in there, too, I think, for the people at home, from Chipper and from Smoltz and Glaff talking pitching. Just the whole dialogue I thought was outstanding. Let me ask you from a broadcast perspective and kind of wrap it up. I mean, this was not a play-by-play, an analyst. These were four guys who played the game, who have been down on the field, who have been through it in the Hall of Fame and have done all the different things that you guys have done. I guess where did the concept come from, and how exactly did you guys tackle all coming together to make this broadcast happen? Well, you know, Jeff Ginther reached out to me and had this idea, our head at Bally's, and thought, what do you think? And I said, man, I think they could be great. Because it's not, you know, in football games you get 16 football games. You can't do that. right. But in baseball, there's 162 games, so for one game to do something like that, and the, the best compliment I got was from a bunch of my buddies last night that listened that said, I felt like I was at a bar watching a baseball game with four buddies. And that's what we wanted it to be. We, You know, look, there were commercial breaks. We didn't talk. We didn't tell the score going to it. We knew that part was not going to be great, but... You know, we wanted to keep the train on the tracks. We wanted to bring a different perspective. And I, I tell you, most of the stuff I saw was very positive. I certainly enjoyed it. And a lot of Thanks. Braves fans I've talked to certainly enjoyed it. Jeff, appreciate your time. Anytime, man. Thanks. Really appreciate Jeff Francoeur for making a little bit of time to recap what was a really fun night in the Bally Sports booth as the Braves came back to beat the Mets by that 13-10 to 10 final score. But also in the booth were three Hall of Famers. Chipper Jones, who you still see around Truist Park. He's working with Braves hitters on a daily basis. And then a couple of Hall of Fame pitchers, Tom Glavin, who rejoined the Bally Sports broadcast this year, and John Smoltz, who, of course, is broadcasting nationally throughout the season, covering a variety of teams. But having all three of these guys back together and in one booth for one fun night of baseball, that checked a giant nostalgia box for me. So I wanted to get some insight from the Hall of Fame wing of that broadcast. Here's my conversation with Tom Glavin from Truist Park this week. A couple questions about the broadcast because I think it's an awful lot of fun. It's kind of a reunion of sorts. I mean, you spend a lot of different time with this club, getting started as a draftee back in 1984. You know, what are kind of your earliest memories of becoming an Atlanta Brave and joining this organization? Uh, Well, I remember when I got drafted, I didn't know much about them. I knew Dale Murphy and I knew Hank Aaron, and that was about the extent of my Braves knowledge. So, you know, I had to obviously... um, learn about the organization but um, I don't think it really mattered I I had an opportunity to play professional ball and and that was what I wanted so um, obviously turned out to be uh, a great place to be and and you know the perfect place for me and in terms of starting my career and getting to the big leagues and and being successful so got to believe that uh, I was where I was supposed to be. I've talked to some guys teammates of yours that said you know when you came up through the minor leagues you guys weren't losing so by the time you got to the big leagues that was some experience that started to help at least plant the seeds of what you guys were able to accomplish in the 1990s bringing in some of the right veterans certainly helps the Breams the Pendletons and the likes but what was the experience like for you going from that late 80s transitional period into a team that became a perennial powerhouse in baseball? It was a lot more fun I can tell you that you know I think for for the Braves obviously at that time they made a a commitment to build around pitching and particularly young pitching and I think looking back at it all of the guys that they had you know myself Smoltzy, Avery, Pete Smith all of us had very similar personalities, you know, and I think that had a lot to do with why the Braves were comfortable doing that. I think they knew that we were all mentally tough, that we could all kind of endure some of the lumps and the bumps along the way and, and get better and, and ultimately get to a place where we helped make this team successful. And I'm not going to say any one of us in our wildest dreams thought we would do what we did, right. but I think it was pretty apparent late in the 1990 season when you looked around that we had a pretty good nucleus Uh, we had some good players and you know all of a sudden you add the guys that we added that winter in Pendleton and Belliard and Bream and and it was a different ball club you know and I think for all of us on the mound you know I think we were all confident obviously in what we were doing and in the fact that we were getting better but learning how to win uh, is another thing 
And I think having those guys behind us playing the defense that they were playing gave us all a ton of confidence. Uh, and that just translated into uh, winning a whole lot more ball games. Folks, and on one of your teammates part of this broadcast, what are your earliest memories of John Smoltz? Because the very interesting thing, I think, is the connective tissue that baseball often has. Doyle Alexander gets traded, you get called up. John Smoltz joins the fray the year later, but uh, meeting John Smoltz, what was that like? You know, I think it obviously for me there was a different level of curiosity because of what you just mentioned. I mean, that was my ticket to the big leagues, yeah. you know. Um, so we're, we're – you know, obviously forever linked for a lot of reasons, that's starting it, right? And so, you know, I guess there was some curiosity um, when John got to the big leagues as to, okay, well, who's this guy that I got, right. you know, essentially moved to the big leagues because we traded for. And, you know, he came in with a splash, you know, first game in New York was pretty darn good and uh, showed exactly why uh, the organization was so high on him. But look, it's not hard to uh, get to know Smoltzy and, and ultimately like him. He's got a big personality. Um, he's always the guy that's initiating the conversation and things of that nature. So that's his personality. And, and you know, he was a great fit for a lot of us that were on a little bit more on the quiet side. But, you know, look, he was uh, obviously highly regarded for the Braves to make that trade, highly regarded when he got into our system, and you can see all the reasons why. That connective tissue kind of goes on to your return to Atlanta. You played with a gentleman named Jeff Rancourt. You're going to be involved with him in this broadcast as well. And it's interesting that even today, Charlie Morton was a guy that came up when you were dealing with injury in your last season. So you're still kind of connected on the field up here in the booth. It's just interesting to see all the different strings in baseball, I guess. Yeah, there are. I mean, look, there's, um, you know, you play long enough, you play with a lot of guys and some guys, <laughs> some guys you forget playing with, you know. So, but no, I was certainly fortunate in, uh, in that regard that got to play with uh, a lot of great players, guys that uh, are lifelong friends and now, you know, in Jeff's case, a guy that, you know, lifelong friend, but also a work partner, so to yeah. speak. So, you know, it's been a lot of fun working with him. I mean, um, you know, we laugh a lot. I think there are, if you listen to the broadcast with the two of us, there are some times during the game where it gets a little bit quiet and we usually have our hand on the cough button and we're laughing about something. So <laughs> kind of leave Brandon out to dry. He's on his own. But, but it's, you know, it's fun. I mean, it's, um, like I said, to have uh, played as long as I had and, and played with so many great guys is certainly a blessing. Last couple of things I want to ask you about, kind of in the same encapsulated season. When you came up in 1987, Phil Negro was brought back briefly, and there's a video that I've seen on Twitter quite a few times where Phil's leaving the field, and there's a young Tom Glavin sitting there on the top of the dugout just kind of waiting. What was that moment like? Because, again, you know, I don't know if a lot of people think about, well, Tom Glavin and Phil Negro, of course, were teammates, Yeah. but that was one of the things <laughs> in your career that has happened. It, it was just a cool moment, you know. I mean, I obviously knew Phil, knew of Phil, knew uh, what a great pitcher he was. And, and certainly what he meant to the Braves organization. And, uh, you know, to see that all come full circle and have him come back and, and end his career as a Brave, I thought was, A, a really cool thing for the Braves to do, and, B, uh, a really cool thing for me to witness as a player. You know, you see what a guy does for a team and for a city, and you see what that relationship is capable of being, you know. And, and um, you know, I think I certainly watched that and was envious of the way the fans loved Phil and how that whole thing went down and, and you can't help but look at it and say you know what I'd love to I'd love to build um, some kind of rapport or relationship with the fans in this city that results in something like that you know um, hard to do and not many people are able to do it but you know I just I remember just being a part of that whole thing and just really taking in how cool it was that 
that it was being done and it was being done for him. As it turns out, 300-game winner exits the field. Another future 300-game <laughs> winner sitting there Little on the dugout. Kind of waiting. I did not know. Um, yeah. Let me just ask you a little bit about your Major League debut. Uh, first start for A.J. smith Shaver is set to happen this weekend, so kind of in the backdrop of that. What do you remember about yours, and you know, what advice or focus would you say that a pitcher should have on his mind when you go out there to do that thing for the first time? You know, I think for me it was there was a lot of things. Not all of it, obviously, on the game. I mean, it was... It's a surreal moment. You're in the big leagues. You're fulfilling a childhood dream. You wonder how you got here. You wonder how it's going to go, how long it's going to last, all those things, right? Um, You try to dismiss all that so that when you get on the mound, it's all about pitching. Um, And it is to a certain extent. But look, you go, it's hard not to go through a little bit of being starstruck. You know, I mean, you're, you're on that mound. And you're facing hitters that, you know, two weeks ago you were watching on TV, you know. So, um, you know, they have history you don't. Um, So there's a little bit of that 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 you have to battle. And I certainly had to battle that for the beginning of my career. And I think most guys do. But, you know, I think the advice that everybody gets is true. It's just whether or not you can apply it. And that is... You do what you did in the minor leagues to get to the big leagues. Yeah. You know, good pitches will get good hitters out at any level. The difference is consistency. You know, uh, how consistently can you do it at this level? Because guys at this level, they don't chase balls out of the strike zone like guys in the minor leagues do. They don't swing at bad pitches like guys in the minor leagues do. It's not to say they don't. They just don't do it as frequently. So I think you learn pretty quickly that, you know, yes, you have to do all the same things. You just have to do it at a more consistent level. But um, ultimately, you trust that what you have and what you've done to get to the big leagues is good enough to keep you there. Now you just got to trust it. Well, thank you so much for the time. I appreciate it. And enjoy this reunion, this broadcast, and something I think a lot of Braves fans are going to enjoy as well. My pleasure. I appreciate it. That players-only booth was such a hit, the Braves did it again a little bit later in the season. At that time, I had the chance to talk to Braves legend and Hall of Famer John Smoltz about his broadcasting career, getting back together with some of his dear friends to call some Braves action, and while we were having this conversation, it was a lead-up to Major League Baseball's trade deadline. I don't know if I need to tell you at this point, but John Smoltz was one of the biggest trade deadline deals ever. It changed the trajectory for the Atlanta Braves for the better part of two decades as they sent Doyle Alexander to the Tigers way back in 1987 to get a young pitching prospect by the name of John Smoltz. Here's my conversation with Smoltzy from back in July. It's probably always fun for you to have a little bit of a homecoming. I know this wasn't the park in which you pitched, but what are those feelings when you do come back to what we do consider now to be the home of the Braves? Yeah, it's pretty cool. Um, uh, the World Series, when I got to call on Fox, was like a full circle moment. Yeah, uh, Probably the hardest job I've ever had to do, but the most enjoyable from a standpoint of what everyone knew that I did for a living was play for the Atlanta Braves. So. Uh, in this new job that I'm in, I approach it the same way. I'm not afraid to laugh at myself. May, you know, I'm not afraid to fail. I'll try to have fun. I try to inform and entertain. So here is more or less, if I could say it this way, I do a Fox game, which is my livelihood and my job. It's more uh, suit-based, straight-laced, and yeah. still can have fun. But there's, it's a total bias scenario, meaning you can't be biased to anything. You have to call it right down the middle. And where this is a bias scenario. You're the home broadcast team. I'm just kind of filling in and having a good time with Jeff. And and then, of course, um, you know, we did that four-man booth that was a lot of fun. So it's a little bit of perspective. I started my career kind of doing this mm-hmm. uh, with Ernie Johnson Jr. and um, Joe Simpson and, and the likes of Chip Carey. So yeah. I, I just I still uh, feel like I'm having a lot of fun. 
Yeah, and it's a pretty cool career. I know that obviously playing it at a very high level is one thing and a great accomplishment, but being able to spend all this time around the game, I'm sure it gives you, with your perspectives, a lot of opportunity to share some of the many things that you experienced over the course of your two decades in the Matrix. It is. A lot has changed. So you got to adapt. You know, I can't stay stuck in an era. Um, certainly, I've had to learn how to adjust to a lot of things that are going on, uh, whether it be in the, the philosophy of the game and some of the nuances. And I just uh, don't pretend that... Uh, when I got into this, everybody said, don't pay attention to uh, the noise that's out there because nobody understands that you're not rooting for somebody. Mm -hmm. And everyone thinks at a national level that a national broadcaster is rooting for the other team. So mm -hmm. if 50% is doing that, then I guess it's a pretty good a pretty good game because 50% think you're rooting for the other team and the other 50% think you're rooting for the other team. Yeah, well, talking about that four-man broadcast you guys were able to do and all of the other things, the guests and all the fun stuff, not to mention the game that we got to watch between right. the Braves and the Mets a little bit earlier, the announcement from Bally, you guys are going to do that again. I, wish, I want you to kind of walk me through, A, how much fun that was the first time and how much you're looking forward to being able to do it again with those guys. Yeah, you don't know what you're ever going to expect um, when something new is being uh, kind of embarked and it was kind of the perfect storm um, you know, we didn't rehearse or rehearse or do anything. It was just sort. It was just kind of organic, and that's the best. That's really what they wanted. They emphasized, don't you're not play by playing anything. You're not calling a game. You're having a conversation, and we got a chance to. By the way, it was going to be one of the greatest pitching matchups that you see in the year, and it just not, <laughs> right. not only did it not turn into that, but it turned into an epic game that obviously had a lot of twists and turns. So, I say like this: I, I do games all the time. Um, and I've, I've never been as tired as that game only because I had so much fun. Like yeah. you, you just, you're laughing and you're, it, it, the game was, was so entertaining from within that I felt myself like, wow, <laughs> that was a blast. But then I had to get up the next morning and go do a national game. So, you know, I had to get right back and, and do the thing that I um, do for a living. So that was a, that was a fun uh, out of body experience and and the realization was we all realize how important play-by-play -play is yeah the play-by-play -play might just be who's driving the car but i know just from a viewer's perspective and from everything you hear from braves fans there was a lot of enjoyment wrapped up in not only the final score the final call the poor larry a crown and all that good yeah. stuff but you guys took a walk down memory lane you had greg maddox popping in i mean it was pretty much a, a braves reunion if you will and a pretty great baseball game yeah and i i heard that from a lot of people too as well like you you're you're, um, you're trying to do your best to entertain, and then you realize it's kind of like we're just back together, right? Mm -hmm. um, the three of us, of course, Tommy, Greg, Tommy, uh, the four of us, spent the majority of our careers together. We all uh, touched uh, an interface with Jeff Francoeur, and, you know, just to see the way each life uh, path has taken us, it, it's pretty interesting that we were able to get together and, and be able to pull it off, and, and I think we'll have the same kind of fun won't promise anything from a standpoint of I don't think we'll try to trick it up too much yeah. um, but I think there will be a lot of fun a lot of laughter a lot of a lot of stories and hopefully again you know the game uh, is very entertaining yeah I'm sure a lot of people are looking forward to that I know I am and as far as stories are concerned it is the month of August you know, the midway portion of that I know you were asked about this on the anniversary of it but your trade to the Atlanta Braves is one that's been talked about an awful lot and clearly it's one that puts you on a path to a Hall of Fame career so I know as you, you talked about it on the broadcast the other night, just the surprise of getting the call that you were traded. But, you know, that phone call was one that certainly changed your life. Have you ever allowed yourself to think, I've just always wondered this, 
what if that hadn't happened? What if you had remained a Detroit Tiger? What that road might have looked like? Yeah, I have. And there's times where I'm, I'm just a, I'm, I'm different in the way that I think. And I, and I think back, I'm like, I would have made it. But I don't know that I would have made it the way I did. Meaning, it would have taken longer to make it with the Tigers. Uh, I'm one that gets after it and learns from my mistakes. But I no doubt that path was much easier to get to the big leagues with the Atlanta Braves. So that trade was so important in my career um, that I don't think twice about I if it hadn't happened. You know, would I have never made it? I don't. I don't believe that to be the case. Right. I don't think you could think that way. But I do know that looking back, what an incredible moment it was for me. And I know this too. Glavin always reminds me, hey, that trade didn't just tighten you up. Mm -hmm. It tightened him up. You know, he got the call to the big leagues because it opened up a spot. And then the rest was history. So the one thing I can tell you that when people talk about us three being Hall of Famers that – that we were always meant to be, that is a joke because we were never on a path to the Hall of Fame. We created a path. Mm -hmm. The organization gave us an opportunity and our era did, but we lost a ton of games early. It was not a pretty picture. It was not like we were meant to be. Mm -hmm. We just flourished in an era that allowed us to both have, all three of us, learn and learn how to be great. And then, of course, you know, those two pursued it at the highest level and and I kind of came along and filled in the gap. Uh, now, a man who obviously had a very big influence on your career, managed you for the majority of that, of course, was Bobby Cox. He was the general manager at the time who made that trade. I was kind of curious, when did you have that first conversation with Bobby Cox and being welcomed into the Braves organization? What was that like? Yeah, it was kind of surreal because I was I was devastated from the trade. Uh, I had needed some time to kind of get over not being wanted but then realizing I was wanted by somebody else. And I took a long drive to Richmond, Virginia, because that's where I needed to go uh, once the trade happened. Briefly talked with Bobby Cox and knew that he had, you know, was the reason on, on me making the trade. What became unbelievable is that once he became the manager, you can imagine what that was like to see a player that you traded for and then to manage him and believe in him and kind of... I never really looked at it this way, but I was kind of like the teeter-totter piece for his success or not. Not meaning that he wasn't going to be successful, but he would have been the guy that made the trade. And luckily for me, he was my manager, and he stuck by me, and he gave me every opportunity to be great. And I would not be the pitcher I am or the man I am without Bobby Cox as the manager. You mentioned Tom Glavin. He is a part of that broadcast and will be again here on the 23rd coming up. Um, A young Tom Glavin, a young John Smoltz, when you guys crossed paths and then, of course, came to the big leagues, took some lumps, obviously had a lot of success in the 1990s. What has it been like to form that friendship, that bond that's obviously lasted for decades? Yeah, you know, we were kind of the same kind of, um, grew up kind of the same area, not 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 necessarily the region, but he grew up middle class kind of with parents similar to mine and had some of the blue collar kind of work ethics that I admired. And I think that's where we kind of gelled with each other and how we went about it was in different ways. I had different style pitching than he did. But he taught me a lot of how to kind of gut it out and hide your emotions. You know, don't show it. I was a very show-my-emotions type guy. And he taught me things indirectly, as did Greg Maddox. And we bonded because our personalities didn't allow us to be worried about who the guy was going to be, like who's the ace. And I think that could have been very fragile if we all wanted to be that guy. Like certainly for me, I would have been let down a lot because seeing what they did, 
but we, we, we played a ton of golf together. I was kind of a fish out of water when I got here. Um, they had already established a young pr- pitching prospects in the barn leagues, and I was the guy that was traded for that was supposed to, you know, hopefully be uh, what I ended up being, and yeah. they, they just let me in. They, they, they basically took me in right away, and, and I was grateful for that. Let me wrap up with this. I mean, you're a guy that set a lot of records for this Atlanta Braves franchise, including uh, the single-season strikeout record. There's a gentleman that the Braves have now named Spencer Strider who has made quite a name for himself on strikeouts over his first couple of years. What do you see in him, and what do you think the ceiling is for Spencer Strider as he moves forward and pursues not just records, but the ability to be a power pitcher in today's game? Yeah, I hope selfishly he can stay healthy. I really do. I know this, we're in an era of just pitchers getting hurt all the time. I think he knows his body. He's a special athlete with a special mindset that would allow him to pitch longer than what people you know, may want to put him through the mill. I, I hope that he progresses the way we did. He's so far better than all of us, it's not even close. But the one thing that we were lucky enough to do is pitch 20 years plus, and that's just not going to happen anymore. You know, And I hope he can just rise above that and become his own freak and not adhere to a lot of the things that are happening in the game. As far as the strikeouts go, he's just got phenomenal stuff. He'll learn to become a better pitcher. He'll realize that he doesn't have to strike out 14 every game. But we're in an area of sexy stats, and that's what really kind of – and I hope he'll realize that if he pitches a game in eight innings and only strikes out five, they're going to go, what happened? What's wrong? Hey, I won, by the way, and I pitched well. (laughs) we got to get away from that, and I think he'll be just fine. He's going to shatter a lot of records, but I hope – He's able to shatter him because he stays healthy. Well, Braves legend, Hall of Famer John Smoltz, appreciate all the time and look forward to seeing you around the ballpark again soon. My pleasure. As the Braves slugged their way towards the All-Star break, it became apparent that Atlanta was going to have more than a few representatives in the National League starting lineup. It ended up being a who's who of Braves with the most in franchise history heading to the Midsummer Classic in Seattle. In total, it was eight Braves All-Stars on the National League squad. Ronald Acuna Jr. got the most votes in baseball, while Orlando Arcia, of all players, well, he got the starting shortstop nod after winning the fan vote. But Matt Olson, Austin Riley, Ozzie Albies, Spencer Strider, Bryce Elder, and Sean Murphy were also All-Stars for the Braves this season. But I had a chance to catch up with one of the great Braves All-Stars of all time, in fact, one of the greatest Braves of all time, and that is Atlanta legend Dale Murphy. To talk about the All-Star game, his memories from his playing career, and as one man who's won an MVP to another who seemed to be on that path and would eventually win it in Ronald Acuna Jr., Dale Murphy shared his thoughts on a lot of things with me on From the Diamond back in July. There has been no Braves player, I think, more synonymous with the Most Valuable Player Award than my next guest right here, right now, on From the Diamond. It's Dale Murphy, the Braves great, who won the MVP not once but twice, 1982 and 1983, as part of a Braves club that was known as America's Team, for those of us who grew up on TBS way back in the 1980s. Murph, I appreciate you making the time, and I guess I'll ask you first off, because again, the All-Star Game was just this past week. What do you think about, what do you reflect on from being in the All-Star Game? Because you got to play in quite a few of these things, and I think it's always fun to enjoy what the All-Star Game brings to us uh, from the fan perspective. Yeah, it is. Uh, First of all, Grant, thanks for having me on. It's always a great time of year, and I was lucky enough to get in seven of them. It's still a great game, and a couple memories is not everybody got in the game. Uh, my first game, uh, I know they try to play everybody now, but that wasn't the case. Chuck Tanner got me in the game. Uh, Jose Cruz did not get in the game. And uh, I don't know who else didn't get in the game, but, you know, I got in that bat. 
got in the game, I think, in the field for a couple innings, maybe one. And so I was really lucky, my first one, uh, to get in the game. So it it was a very memorable night, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Because you're out there with a lot of guys that you have seen from afar. You've competed against, obviously, for your team. But then you kind of got to look at the American League and yeah, otherwise, you didn't really get to see those guys over the course of the season unless you met in October. But like you said, a lot has changed in this game. I am curious because you played in quite a few All-Star games and you did pretty well in that whole fan voting thing, which has been going on for quite some time. What are some of your other favorite All-Star memories? Because I know you've got a few, including, I believe, a long ball that was mixed all up in there as well. Uh, yeah, I got a home run. I, the one in San Francisco, I think, was uh, 84. <laughs> it's weird how things come to your mind grant and then all of a sudden you're like i'm not sure if that's right but i think it's 84 uh in san francisco uh great memory there um i got a few coming to mind all-star games one is uh, pete rose told me i was with ray knight we were walking out to the bench in the tunnel there between uh, the clubhouse and the bench and pete rose stopped uh, ray knight and i and said uh hey if you guys get in the game today don't do anything different than you would during the regular season so it's like I immediately thought of him running over Ray Fossey. Uh, I think, Grant, I participated in, I think it was the first All-Star Game home run derby in Minnesota. Yeah. And people have told me it was the first one, and it was just thrown together. I don't know if they asked me the day before, or that would have been on our workout day. And just like, oh, yeah, I'll do that. And it was kind of an inning thing. I think we played three innings. Mm -hmm. I hit a few home runs. The American League won. As I remember, Tom Brunanski, I think, hit a home run to win it for the American League. So we didn't really play individually. We played, you know, for the, our leagues. And uh, people have said that was the first one. And uh, I really, the home run in San Francisco p played in. Yeah, played in. We got beat. We had quite a streak going. We got beat in 83, I think, was it, Grant, in uh, Comiskey? Mm -hmm. Atley Hammaker was in. Oh, gosh, I want to say Fred Lynn hit a grand slam. And we had a streak going there. You know, without interleague play and without really facing each other to the All-Star game or the World Series, there was a lot on the line, a lot of pride on the line, just because our leagues were so separate. Absolutely. Let me ask you a little bit about something I'm kind of interested in because there's some parallels to what's going on with the Braves today. They've got Ronald Acuna Jr. playing such an outstanding level of baseball. And when you talk about uh, playing at that level you're going to get some recognition. And when you do, typically, have a season the way that he's having, you've got a very good chance to win the Most Valuable Player Award. That's something that you won not once but twice. 1982 was the first of those two. When you look back on that, getting an honor like that, putting together a season like you did as a team, of course, I'm sure was a big part of that and a big point of pride for you in having a career year to that point. Then to follow it up in 1983 with a second one, uh, when you reflect on those Most Valuable Player Awards, being able to win a pair of those, uh, what do you remember most about those and whatever it was during those seasons or perhaps just some things that you guys were able to accomplish after working very hard to start turning things around for the Braves? Yeah, it, it, you know, the first one kind of snuck up on me, really, Grant. I mean, when you look at my numbers in 82, they don't jump out at you. And I think that's one of the things, unless you have a completely dominating year, sometimes MVP awards are kind of the right time, the right year. Statistically, I thought I was in the running in 82. Uh, and then 83, you know, I you know, stole 30 bases, hit 30 home runs, and probably my best all-around year and knew I had another shot. And so I, it's kind of a combination of things. You know, we started playing good. The team started playing good. Getting to the ballpark was fun. Uh, prior to that, it wasn't that much fun. You know, uh, we were having fun. We were having good crowds. 
Uh, Joe Torrey and I really related well. He communicated. He was really involved in my hitting. And we had the hitting coaches. It's just that back then, and especially from Joe Torrey, a guy that won the, the batting title, and we really related really well. Mm-hmm. And he just uh, he kind of opened my career, especially starting to steal bases. I had never thought of myself as a base stealer. You know, I always say Bobby got me to the big leagues, really found a position for me. But Joe Torrey kind of helped me believe I could be a complete player, which really made my career. You think about MVPs and being able to win is unusual to a certain degree, but I'm not trying to downplay it. It's just sometimes it's circumstances and who you're going against. I think about Hank Aaron all the time winning one MVP. Mm-hmm. And and it's just, a you know, a different level of competition. And, and so, you know, I was fortunate to play and I had some, my best years. I didn't get hurt, you know, during quite a few stretches, about four or five years. And uh, team was good. It's just something that uh, kind of in the flow, I guess, is the best way to put it. You just kind of get there. You're not thinking too much. I was healthy, and just a combination of a lot of things led to my best years. Uh, Ronald Acuna Jr., I, I don't even know how to quantify his numbers and statistics and what he's doing. Yeah, Obviously, he's already got 40 stolen bases, and he's he's on his way to hitting 40 home runs. That's just a different level. I don't even know how to relate to what he's doing. Uh, his strikeouts are down. Uh, his on base percentage. I mean, starting off the first inning, this team, I think the odds are uh, good with the team that scores first. Mm-hmm. And so this is a real good team to get the first runs across. Uh, and Ronald's been do it all. It looks like matured in so many ways. Uh, I just, I don't know how to describe it. Just can kind of sense that he's really comfortable and very confident and knows if he doesn't hit a home run, it doesn't do all this stuff that he's a gold glover in the outfield. I would have to say, I don't know who his competition is, but I mean, this is just next level numbers he's putting up. Yeah, it is. When you talk about the five tool players, Ron Lacuna Jr. should probably be the illustration if you were to look that up in the baseball dictionary. But flashing back to 1983, you brought this up. It was a special season for you in a number of different ways. And you joined the 30-30 club that year, something that I believe at that time, only the great Hank Aaron had done in a Braves uniform before you accomplished it. Uh, having done this, I mean, 30-30 is such an interesting accomplishment overall because of what it requires, both the power and the speed and the ability, obviously, to steal those bases. When did you become aware of it being a possibility, or was it a goal that you set from day one that year to try to join the 30-30 club? Well, it's funny. After the 82 season, I remember, I think it was after the playoffs were over or something, and we're, you know, saying goodbye, and everybody's, you know, trying to get over the you know, getting swept by the Cardinals. Anyway, I specifically remember Bob Walk coming up to me. He goes, great year, Murph. Good luck. Have a good offseason. Next year, you're going to be a 30-30 guy. And I was like, well, I never even thought about that. So, you know, I think I stole 30 on the nose. And I think in 84, my numbers started going down. I mean, I didn't have the raw speed to keep the numbers up. I kind of snuck up on everybody. I had decent speed. And I, I... like I say, Joe Torrey just changed my perception of what I could do on the field. And so when he gave me the green light, you know, for three years, I never got a steal sign. I could go at any time. Wow. And when you have that trust, I was studying pitchers. I was studying the, I, I knew what the score of the game was. I knew the situation and I tried to be smart about it. I wasn't smart every time, but uh, it, it, I thought about it a lot more and, uh, you know, new pitchers I could get a good jump on. 
Whereas in the previous years, I didn't even look at the pitchers that much. So I really credit Joe Torrey with just giving me the idea that, uh, you know, over the course of 162 games, you could steal some bases. And then when I got close to stealing the 30th, you know, I obviously started becoming a thing. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and uh, it might've been the last weekend. I can't remember, but it, it was close to the, you know, the last week. I know that. That, of course, is the voice of Braves great Dale Murphy, who joins me here on From the Diamond with Grant McCauley on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. As you look back at 1983, I know you mentioned 1982 that the MVP award, getting that kind of snuck up on you. Was it an equal or greater surprise that you won that award in back-to-back years? Because that's something that a lot of players would be happy to win one, but to win two, that is really saying something about the level at which you were playing at a time in which there were plenty, I think, of capable MVP candidates across baseball, across the National League in particular. Yeah, it. I don't know how to describe how I was feeling. It was just, uh, you know, I tried to figure out, okay, so I just won two MVPs. You know, is this going to motivate me or is this going to kind of slow me down? I mean, are expectations getting too high? So I just kind of really had to sit down and say, okay, look, you've won these things. You've had some good years, but kind of use it to motivate yourself, you know, to work even harder. I just really tried to use it as a motivation thing during the off season. Yeah. Stay in shape, keep working hard, don't rest, uh, keep the same approach, you know, cause I knew it, like I say, they're subjective. It's kind of the right time, right place, right year, you know, just don't think this is automatic and all you got to do is throw your glove out there and things are going to work out. So yeah. I used it to concentrate really on, on uh, just being prepared. And if I could be ready, be prepared, be in good shape, and then I, I didn't really have to worry about what was going to happen during the year because I was ready to go and I was motivated. And so I tried to use those, you know, psychologically that way instead of, you know, trying to guard against complacency because, you know, these things happen. And so I said, look, when in another MVP, I don't know, but I'm going to prepare the same. I'm going to be exactly the same and ready to go as I was these past two years. Do you feel like, as you look at your career and, and particular years, and maybe how you were feeling in those years, it was 1983 the greatest year that you had, statistically speaking, or just on a personal level? I know there's a lot of team goals and you know more winning happened in different years and those kinds of things, but 1983 was a year in which you joined the 30-30 club. You set a team record for runs scored. And all of those things were just tied up in there. Do you feel like that was maybe the best all-around season that you were able to put together? Absolutely. I just, and the team, I, we didn't win it that year, but we were competitive all year, you know, in the race. You know, I hit 44 home runs in 87, but there's nothing like being in a race, uh, you know, with a chance to win it. Again, it's it, it was just the excitement around the city, the team, the organization. You know, 82 is fun because we won the division, but as far as just being in the zone and, you know, not thinking too much, that was the year that I always remember that it was just, like I said earlier, I think I was, you know, I was in a flow that, uh, you know, five years earlier, I didn't even know what that was like, you know, but I, I really felt that things were flowing and show up to the ballpark. I felt good. I felt strong and, and uh, we were competitive. So it was a lot of fun. A lot of great memories in those, I think, mid eighties teams, especially, and some awards that came your way at that time. And, uh, just a time in Braves baseball. I know for a lot of us out there that grew up on the 80s Braves that we look back on extremely fondly. I mean, every time we see one of those powder blue uniforms, it's hard not to get a little bit of a different feeling about the Atlanta Braves that 
you know, maybe they ought to dust those things off and bring them back at some point. But uh, Dale, I appreciate all your time as always. Look forward to catching up down the line. Thanks, Grant. I always love to be on with you anytime. If you haven't noticed year after year, the Atlanta Braves, they seem to like their bobbleheads because it's become an annual tradition to give out more and more of those throughout the course of the summer. There were some great additions to the collection to be made in 2023. One of my personal favorites, one from a night back in 1993, marking the 30th anniversary of Fred McGriff's trade to the Atlanta Braves just after the All-Star break that season. Well, a lot of longtime Braves fans remember that that was the night that Atlanta Fulton County Stadium caught fire, and so did the Atlanta Braves as Fred McGriff led them on a furious finish to 1993, edging out the Giants to win the National League West. And of course, Fred McGriff in July was inducted into the Baseball Hall of Fame. The Braves decided to commemorate that press box fire by turning an iconic photo of outfielder Ron Gant into its very own bobblehead. I had a chance to catch up with Ron to talk about that night at the ballpark, Fred McGriff's impact on the Braves, and much more. We also had a unique anniversary. 30 years ago this week, the Braves traded for Fred McGriff, the press box caught fire, and, well, as you know, the Braves also went on a little bit of a run in 1993 in one of the great finishes and great division races we've ever seen. On that night, though, when the press box caught fire, there was a lot of different things that were happening both before, during, and, well, after the game. And there were several Braves that I think ended up with some pretty iconic visuals in the form of photographs. And one of those photographs turned into a bobblehead the Braves gave away this past week, and that belonged to Mr. Ron Ginn. I'm thrilled to be joined by Ron right now here on From the Diamond. He, of course, is a longtime Atlanta Brave, and of course you see him now on Fox 5 as he has been part of that team for quite a while as well. Ron, I really appreciate you making some time on what is kind of a fun week to walk down memory lane for the Atlanta Braves. Uh, absolutely brings back a lot of different memories, and most of them good. I mean, uh, what a night that was at the ballpark that night on the night that we got Fred McGriff. But, uh, yeah, it, it's special. Um, it is definitely something that is sentimental to me, and it's an honor to have a bobblehead of that night because that's one of the most memorable nights in Atlanta Braves history. Yeah, no doubt about that. And there's just so many different things that just all kind of came to a crossroads in that 1993 season. And I want to get into, obviously, the press box fire, the photos that you guys were able to take beforehand, which might be one of the, <laughs> the craziest photo shoots I think I've ever seen. Uh, and then, of course, what happened after Fred McGriff arrived. But as you kind of look at the pieces that were put into place leading the Braves into that 1993 season, I mean, you were part of, I think, one of the most special times in Atlanta Braves history. Some exceptional teams, worst to first in 91, World Series appearances in 91 and 92. I'll always maintain the 91 World Series was an instant classic. My only gripe was the wrong team won. But what were the memories yeah. <laughs> uh, that flood back to you when you start thinking about that time in your life and that time in your career? Well, we can even go back to 1990 when we were uh, basically the worst team in baseball and uh, the Braves front office, John Schroholtz, Bobby Cox, they uh, put their thinking hats on and they put together a really good ball club for the upcoming season in 1991. You know, first part of that season in 91, we weren't so sure how good we were, but it ended up being a special season because no other team did what we did the second half of the season and was able to put together a run to get into the playoffs and go on to the World Series. So, you know, going from 1990 to 1991 was like... It's like nothing that I could ever uh, imagine, even at the time when I was playing. But mm -hmm. it was happening right before our eyes, and it was just – it's something we just rode the wave. Yeah, 
And I kind of feel like just as somebody who was growing up watching those teams and very familiar with the Braves and for so long, you know, it was just not being able to find the right mix of mm-hmm. players. I mean, we had Dale Murphy, which was very cool, uh, but it was trying to get a surrounding cast. In 1990, Dale Murphy was traded away. And as you pointed out in 1991, mm-hmm. some really special things started happening. And I guess it's kind of like the old Wizard of Oz analogy where everything went from black and white to Technicolor all of a sudden as you came into your own. <laughs> yes. you know, David Justice, Terry Pendleton, and Sabreem came over. You had the pitching staff. I mean, everything yeah. just started to come together. Yeah, we're not in Kansas anymore, Dorothy. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it was just, it was <laughs> special. I mean, and you know, if you look back to those teams back then and you look at how the front office conducted what types of pieces, what types of players they decided to bring over, you see a lot of similarities in today's Braves teams. Alex Anthopoulos is doing a tremendous job bringing the right players over Mm -hmm. at the right time. And so between the two errors, there are a lot of similarities. Chatting with Ron Gant here on From the Diamond with Grant McCauley on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. He joins me on the WadeFord.com hotline as we take a walk down memory lane to, and again, it's hard to believe, 30 years ago, the Braves traded for Fred McGriff. The press box caught fire, and as the old saying goes, so did the Atlanta Braves. One of the most memorable debuts, Ron, in Braves history as McGriff came over. Let me ask you, just from a general sense, what you remember about that night, maybe where the club was at that time when Fred came over? Because, again, it's hard to believe it has been so long because in a lot of ways it just kind of feels like yesterday. Yeah, and, you know, after – that's a good point because after, you know, the 1991 and 1992 seasons making the postseason and going on to the World Series – we felt like 1993, we still had the ball club to do that. The front office, again, made the right move. We felt like we needed one more piece. And we got that piece in Fred McGriff because we were nine games back behind the Giants that season. Yeah. Until we made that trade the night of the press box fire. Fred shows up. He's inserted into the lineup right away. We're down five to nothing in that game. I'm on first base. He hits a big two-run shot to put us ahead, and then we win that game, and after that, we were the hottest team in baseball. Unbelievable to see in the run that the Braves went on. I believe it was 54-17 and after the arrival of Fred McGriff. The, mm-hmm. uh, the Giants won 103 games. The Braves, well, they won 104, and I think as a result of this, yep. we probably saw the advent of the wild card in the expanded playoffs, but that may be a discussion for another time. But this press box fire is such a hot topic, no pun intended, among Braves fans. (laughs) Um, I went back and watched some news reports and the game recently on YouTube because, again, it's amazing as we were chatting right before we came on, what you can do with technology these days. But now we talk about the bobblehead, I think, a little bit. As you said, Uh an honor to get a bobblehead, but um, as you got to the ballpark that night, I would imagine that was a pretty surreal scene to see any part of a stadium on fire. Yeah, uh, you know, we actually just started batting practice and when the fire ignited. And I remember I'm like, as it kept getting larger, I'm like, wow, this is going to be a problem. And sure enough, you start hearing, you know, fire engines coming in. You could hear them from the distance uh, from inside the stadium. I believe the gates had opened, but, you know, a lot of people at that time were just now on their way to the ballpark. So there were only like a handful of fans there. So they kind of cleared those people out. And I felt like I'm like, uh, you know, this is pretty crazy. We might not ever see this again. Maybe I should take a photo in front of us. So a bunch (laughs) of us started taking photos. And then I started doing an interview, and all of a sudden you hear this huge explosion, and everybody just starts running towards center field because we thought pieces of the stadium were going to start flying. So it was just something you never thought you'd ever see in your lifetime. No, I I can't even imagine, you know, being that close to it. I mean, watching it on TV was just kind of surreal because, again, you just kind of wonder – how is the stadium going to be able to weather something like this? But as it turned out, 
you guys were able to play a baseball game that night, and it ended yeah, up being they, a pretty important one. Yeah, they did a really good job. They got the fire engines in there fairly quickly and, and got the fire put out finally. I believe uh, it was supposed to be a 735 game or whatnot, but we ended up starting at like 940 or whatever. The game ended up after midnight. So, you know, they, they did a great job getting that fire under control and, and letting that game continue that night and, and letting the fans see something that they were coming to the game to see because I think we sold a lot of tickets that mm-hmm. night because everyone wanted to come and see Fred McGriff. Yeah, there were an awful lot of tickets sold that night and many nights after that as the 93 Braves mm-hmm. went on the run that they did. So let me ask you, this: the creation of this bobblehead, I mean, do the Braves contact you and let you know this is something that they're thinking about or did you find out kind of like the rest of us when the promotional calendar came out that there's going to be a Ron Gant press box bobblehead night? Yeah, they did contact me, and um, they asked me what I thought about it, you know, which was, I didn't expect, you know, but I, I guess it's, it's really creative what they did with it. Uh, but when they did ask me, they sent me uh, kind of like a prototype of what it would look like, and I said, it is perfect, <laughs> because it captures exactly how I felt at the time. I kind of had my hand and my bat up in the air, like, what is going on? But I had a smile <laughs> right, on my face, yeah. so that photo captured the moment of, like, kind of what I was thinking with this fire in the background behind me. As you look back on that and with this bobblehead, it's a fun night to you know relive. And obviously a lot of great things happened for the 93 Braves after that. The arrival of Fred McGriff kind of setting the tone for that second half. Of course, Greg Maddox had signed over the previous winter. You had Tom Glavin, mm-hmm. John Smoltz, Steve Avery, the makings of just one of the greatest pitching staffs that you could assemble. Yourself, David Justice, Terry Pendleton. I mean, I could go all the way down the list. I've collected a lot of cards over the years. But, you know, kind of just, I yeah. guess, putting it in perspective from what the Braves are doing today. I thought you hit on something really interesting earlier on. This is a team that just seemed to be built piece by piece through the minor leagues you guys came through. And I've talked to some of your teammates at that time. You guys weren't used to losing in the minor leagues. Had an awful lot of talent. And I think that's something that kind of manifested at the big league level as well. Well, there's a reason why Brian Snicker is now the manager of the Atlanta Braves is because coming up through the minor league system as a young kid myself, all of our instructors were really serious about their jobs. And it was ABC baseball. If you were in the Braves organization as a player and you were going to make it to the major leagues, you had to play baseball the right way. And there's no better organization in all of major league baseball than the Atlanta Braves as far as bringing these players through their minor league system, developing those players and making them ready for the big leagues. Now you're seeing guys coming up through the minor league system and they're ready to go to the big leagues right away. Mm -hmm. And it's just because of how the Braves run their organization. Brian Snicker being one of those guys, when I was coming through the organization, I mean, there was no one that worked harder as a coach than Brian Snicker. So he really deserved to become the manager of the Atlanta Braves. He's now won a world series and I think he's going to win another one. And You know, it's a product of the environment uh, that the uh, organization created. And they've certainly created that whole environment for winning these days as well. Wrapping up with Ron Gant here Mm -hmm. on From the Diamond with Grant McCauley on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. A couple of questions for you about some Hall of Famers. And I'm going to start with the newest Hall of Famer. He's going in this weekend being inducted. And that, of course, is Fred McGriff. I know you played with him. I know you played against him. But if you had to define or just describe what it was, kind of the gravitas of Fred McGriff, because I feel like he's one of the great underrated sluggers in baseball history. It took him too long to get this call to the hall. Oh, absolutely. I mean, well, one of my best teammates, favorite teammates ever, one. Uh, But two, as a player, he's just a baseball player. He could pick it at first base. 
and there's no sweeter swing that I've ever seen in baseball. There's been a lot of players that had, you know, you talk about Griffey's and those kinds of players, mm-hmm. but Fred McGriff had the sweetest swing I've ever seen. And he never got fooled. He could fool a pitcher and make the pitcher think that he was going to be looking for a certain pitch. So he was just one of those guys that was just a, a very smart, intelligent, high IQ baseball player. And being around him, I learned a lot from him. You brought up Brian Snitker and, and kind of what he's doing, the role he played both in the minor league instruction for some of you guys, but also the role obviously he plays to this day. The skipper that you played for at that time, of course, was Bobby Cox, who a lot of people might kind of forget was the general manager for quite a time in the late 80s to help put some of these pieces together. As Bobby led you guys, what was it about him and maybe his leadership style that really lent itself? It seemed like through all 25 men on the roster, guys were ready to run through a wall for Bobby Cox. Yeah, and that's because he would run through a wall for you. And and that's the reason why uh, he's the all-time leading manager being ejected from baseball games. I mean, if he felt like there was a situation where he thinks any of his players are getting taken advantage of, he'd step right in there. And as a player, if you know your manager has your back on and off the field, even if in your personal life, if there's anything going on, he'll ask about it and say, what can I do to help you? Uh, He was just that kind of manager and that type of person. So being around Bobby was, you know, knowing baseball to its finest core. He was one of the best managers to be able to manage a game and pull out wins. And to me, there's no better manager that I'd rather play for than Bobby Cox. Yeah, I think that a lot of guys that played under Bobby Cox, whether it was for multiple seasons like yourself, or even maybe just stopped over in Atlanta for a a quick cup of coffee or a couple of months, have a very similar story about Bobby Cox. Ron, again, I really appreciate it. Look forward to catching up with you down the road. And uh, congratulations on this old bobblehead thing. I think that in and of itself is a nice little accomplishment. Grant, thank you so much. It's great talking to you. And it's a lot of fun to be honored like that. Thank you so much. Let's keep things up in the press box, but with no fire in 2023. But there was a changing of the guard in the broadcast booth. It was announced before the season that Chip Carey was going to be moving on, the longtime voice of the Braves on the television side, becoming the new voice of the St. Louis Cardinals for Bally Sports. Of course, the Carey name is synonymous with baseball broadcasting, beginning with Harry Carey and his stints in St. Louis and Chicago, Skip Carey's time with the Braves starting in the early 70s, and spanning across the decades as the Carey name was part of Braves broadcasting with Chip Carey for much of the last 20 years. Now, the St. Louis Cardinals didn't pay a visit to Truist Park until the first week of September. And that was a bit of a homecoming for Chip Carey back in Braves country for the first time as the voice of an all-new and different club. But it was really great to have a chance to catch up with Chip to see how his season was going and to reflect on all those great years of Braves baseball for he and the Carey family. The longtime voice of the Atlanta Braves, who is now the voice of the St. Louis Cardinals. He is Chip Carey. He joins me right now on the WadeFord.com hotline. Chip, it was great to see you this week out of the ballpark and uh, really thrilled to sit down and chat a little bit of baseball with you about the past, the present, and the future. Yeah, it's great to talk to you, Grant. Good to see you, too. We had a fun time in Atlanta, good series for the Cardinals, so uh, that was a nice way to come back to the uh, great state of Georgia. Yeah, I would say that it was. The Cardinals handled their business in the first couple of games. The Braves were able to get one in the third contest, so two out of three goes to St. Louis, and now these two teams are done with one another. But, Chip, I know kind of one of the big stories of the offseason is the big change that was for you and in the booth for the Cardinals, and, of course, as the fallout was for the Atlanta Braves as well. As a guy who spent so much time in Atlanta, how nice was it to be able to come back, walk into the ballpark, and see those familiar faces again? That was the best part. Uh, you know, the people I worked with every day, the folks behind the scenes, you know, uh, Reggie at the press gate and Doug in the press room and Mike Smith, the security guard, the clubhouse guys, 
the players themselves, all the people behind the scenes that fans don't necessarily get to spend an awful lot of time with, uh, were the people that I spent most of my time with. And it was great to see them. It was great to be welcomed back with open arms. And so many people said, welcome home and the like, which made me feel good. Uh, I was really proud of what I was able to do there over my two decades with the Braves, really proud of what my family was able to do there. And, uh, you know, this was a chapter that I never envisioned writing or never envisioned coming up. But uh, if there was a place that uh, I would be willing to leave Atlanta for, it would be St. Louis. And uh, the Cardinals have been just as welcoming to me and the organization as well. So, the transition's been fun. It's been seamless. The team hasn't played as well as we thought they would. But uh, at this stage of my life, at 58, to be able to make a transition like this and a change so drastically and pull it off so well, I'm very proud about that, and I'm very happy to be home, so to speak. Yeah, absolutely. And it's funny how baseball works because there's so many different threads that connect people. And you mentioned you kind of have a community at the ballpark when you go in each and every day. And that, I think, has to be one of the more fun things. But clearly, the Cary name is one that's known in St. Louis, one that's known in Chicago, one that's known here in Atlanta as well. I always enjoy walking into that press box and taking that immediate right. And there you see Skip Carey, Pete Van Weeren, and Ernie Johnson's the voices of Braves baseball over the formative years for a whole bunch of us, I'm sure yourself included. Yeah, of course. I mean, those were formative guys. Obviously, my dad was my hero growing up, but getting to work with all three of those guys was a real thrill for me in Atlanta. Uh, I don't understand why Don Sutton and Joe Simpson's uh, posters or Mm -hmm. prints aren't up on the wall. They're Braves Hall of Famers and great broadcasters, too. But that's a discussion for another time. But, yeah, I mean, the, the, the legacy and tradition there has always been very, very good. And I'm very proud of that I was able to continue carrying that torch forward and hand it off to Jeff Francoeur and Tom Glavin and Al Brandon, who's doing a great job, and uh, Ben Ingram on the radio side. Uh, we're a very close fraternity. And it all started with Ernie Johnson, who said, look, we're first among equals here. This is not a pecking order. This is all about us. It's not an individual thing. We're all voices of the Braves, and our job is to go out and call the games and have fun and support each other. And I'm really, really proud that I was able to do that, and the guys that have followed me are doing that too. Yeah, and calling a baseball game, I still think, is maybe the greatest job in the world. I'm sure you'd probably concur along those lines. And before we get to some of the other things for the Cardinals, for the Braves, things going on this year, and maybe another walk down memory lane, we talk about your dad and Pete Van Weeren and Ernie Johnson especially and you know Joe Simpson and Don Sutton along there in that mix as well for some of the best years of Braves baseball that we're ever going to see. I really think it's a crying shame that the Hall of Fame has not found a place for some of the great voices of the Atlanta Braves, which of course is one of the great franchises in baseball history. Yeah, I mean, I can't speak as to what the Hall of Fame should or shouldn't do. I think uh, they are missing a great opportunity in this regard. Mm-hmm. When the broadcaster's wing started, you know, we only had radio and TV, and there was only one outlet. We didn't have all the national broadcasts. We didn't have all the different cable outlets, and there weren't as many announcers doing the games, and it was basically radio to start. But there are so many more methods and avenues for people to consume the product, and there's so many talented people that are being left aside, and they only put one in a year. Right. I know that in talking with my dad and Ernie and Pete, and all three of them discussed it, not because they were trying to push their candidacies for Cooperstown, but they all felt that it wouldn't be right if Pete went in without Ernie and Dad, or Dad wouldn't want to go in without Pete and Ernie, and that's what made their partnership so good. They were three guys who were a unit, and later on when Don and Joe came along and Billy Sample and Daryl Chaney and me, we all kind of uh, approached it that way, but you're right. Uh, those guys were all wonderful voices of the game. They were tremendous ambassadors of the product. And remember, the Braves product stunk for a lot of those seasons. Right. We all remember the 14 consecutive division championships, but from 1976 until the early 80s, and then from 85 on, it was pretty bleak around there. They made it entertaining and informative and fun, and it wasn't a controlled message from the top. 
And I think that's why people really um, love their broadcasts and why it resonated with so many people. They always told the truth, good, bad, or ugly, and they weren't micromanaged to death. But that said, I'd love to see the Hall of Fame recognize all three of them. And Dad's, uh, you know, one of the last conversations I had with my dad before he passed away, unfortunately, was if I can't go in while I'm alive, I'm not going to enjoy it. So the heck with it. I'm in the Braves <laughs> Hall of Fame. The fans in Atlanta treated me great, and that was his Hall of Fame, and he's content with that. But um, speaking selfishly and as uh, his biggest supporter, yeah, the, the Hall of Fame is, is a far lesser place without those three guys and so many other talented people who I think are deserving and should be there. Absolutely. Co-sign on that. And hopefully those ranks will grow as the years go on, but hopefully we don't wait too many more years for it because I think the voices of your dad, of Pete Van Weeren, of Ernie Johnson, and of many others were the narrators of the summer and, of course, as the 90s came along, some stories were told in the fall that were pretty darn good as well. Uh, Chip, this transition for you from Atlanta to St. Louis, you said it's been a seamless one, a fun one for you. A lot of people, when they think of your granddad, they think of the Chicago Cubs. But his story really began in St. Louis, and I think that's a pretty cool opportunity for you to follow in a legacy of your grandfather in another way, just like you did in Chicago. Yeah, it's been pretty amazing. Uh, you know, all three of us, my dad, grandfather, and I were all born in St. Louis, um, all grew up there. Uh, Harry's house that he was born in is still standing. It's occupied. It's in a place called Lafayette Park. It's about three miles from Bush Stadium. My dad and Harry went to Webster Groves High School, which still stands. Imagine Mayberry and dad being 18 years old in 1957. <laughs> That's a little terrifying uh, to think about what took place. Um, but yeah, Harry started there in 1945. You know, back in those days, there were two or three stations that carried the games. They weren't exclusives. Uh, multiple outlets did the home games, and they would have reporters there, and they would do the games. And Harry basically called the ownership of the Cardinals and said, "I can do a better job than anybody. Hire me." And they did. Wow. And he went there. He was there from 1945 until 1969. He saw every bat of Stan Musial's career. Uh, he saw the Cardinals rise from you know, humble beginnings to the powerhouse that they became in the 60s and then left after the 69 season, went to Oakland for a year, then to the White Sox and then to the Cubs. But it is incredibly gratifying to know that the 25 years he was there, he's still remembered, he's still thought of so highly. And people walk up to me all the time and say, you know, I used to listen to your grandfather when I was a little kid on the front porch in southern Illinois or in northern Indiana. And they tell me a story which keeps him alive. And uh, the same is true for my dad. I've run into some of his old classmates who come to the ball games now. Uh, and now I'm able to forge my own way of doing things and hopefully turning on people to Cardinals baseball so that 20 years from now, when hopefully my sons are in the major leagues, right. they'll say the same thing about me. But the family connection there is big. It's strong. Obviously, the Buck family is in, in, inextricably intertwined with mm -hmm. Cardinals history. Um, and so there's a, there's a comfort there and a, and, a, and a friendliness there. And knowing the culture from living there, I think, as you said, has made that transition a lot more seamless than perhaps it would have been for someone else. And again, such an incredible generational connection for your grandfather, for your father, for you. And now I would be remiss not to ask you about the next generation of carry broadcasters that are coming along and how their path is treating them thus far as they break in to the minor league yeah. ranks, which is where you cut your teeth. That's it. My uh, twin sons, uh, Stephen and Chris, are in Amarillo. They're in their second year with the Sod Poodles. That's the Arizona Diamondbacks AA affiliate. They're doing great work down there, both on radio and TV. Uh, they're spreading their wings and doing it themselves. They work together, which is really unique. I think they're the first identical twins to work together in pro baseball uh, behind a microphone. So we just keep making stupid history all the way up and down uh, the genealogical tables. 
uh, but they're terrific. They're great people. Um, they, they're excellent announcers, and I'm sure they're going to get looks from a lot of places hopefully soon because mom and dad would like them off the payroll, and they'd like <laughs> to get started too. Um, but there's another one too, my 14-year-old, soon-to-be 15-year-old son Tristan grabs the iPad and broadcasts the games too. And uh, there's nothing more gratifying to me as a father to see my sons finding their way and finding a vocation and a path that they enjoy and love and that it happens to be something I do is is really, really great and humbling. But most of the credit goes to their mom because she's the one that has to hold down the fort when I'm off saying ground ball to second in Pittsburgh uh, for six months out of the year. So our family's been incredibly blessed. Baseball's given us everything. We understand that. We're very, very grateful for it. It's a very small part of who we are. But as far as our family and our love of the game and our hopefulness of passing this torch along and keeping the tradition going for as long as possible, uh, we feel like we're in a pretty good spot. I'm really, really proud of my guys, and I know they're proud of me too, which means the world. Absolutely, and and obviously a lot of folks out there are going to be following with a lot of interest there. you got a great team going, and it's nice to hear that they're out there finding their way as well and connecting baseball with the generations. That, I think, is the essence, one of the great things about this sport. Let me close out with this because as you span some generations of Braves baseball, I know you're familiar with the gentleman who's going to be getting his number retired over the weekend. That, of course, is Andrew Jones. I still think he's the best I've ever seen in the outfield. I don't really know any way to quantify it, but the numbers certainly back it up. A long overdue honor and hopefully just another credential, if you will, on what is a pretty impressive case for Cooperstown admission for Andrew Jones. What are your favorite memories of watching Andrew patrol center field for the Braves for so many years? Well, the Spider-Man catch obviously is a highlight. I didn't, I didn't do that game, but I watched it. Um, just watching him play center field and the uh, the elegance with which he did it, it looked like he wasn't trying hard. He was. He just didn't have to look like he tried hard. He was so instinctive, and he played so great. He played as shallowly as anybody. I mean, Michael Harris does that too. And when the ball was over his head, you always felt like he was going to go get it. He made the guys around him better. He was a middle-of-the-lineup hitter, which made people better. He played every day, which made people better. And I think you make an excellent point, Grant, about uh, how the Hall of Fame consideration is going to change. We now have ways where we can measure the impact of defense. Mm -hmm. And the defensive prowess with which Andrew played, all you have to do, and I said this on our broadcast, is go ask John Smoltz, Tom Glavin, Greg Maddox, and all the other great Braves pitchers, even the not-so-great Braves pitchers, what Andrew Jones (laughs) meant to their careers, Uh and they'll tell you. Uh, how instrumental he was in that. So, yeah, I'm, I'm happy to see his number retired. It's long overdue. Uh, I hope that Cooperstown will continue to support him and his numbers will keep climbing as they did for Fred McGriff. And as I think we get more and more wisdom as to how important defense was and is to our game, guys like him who didn't have nice big round numbers in every category uh, will be rewarded. And once that happens for Andrew, there's another glaring omission that has to be taken care of. And that's, of course, Dale Murphy, who played center field so similarly. No doubt about it. I think that the baseball hall has already gotten a good one with Fred McGriff, who just went in this year, Andrew, Dale Murphy. And of course, I don't think I could go without having the voices of Braves baseball for so long with Pete Van Weeren, with your father, and of course, with Ernie Johnson getting a call to the hall at some point as well. Chip, I appreciate all of your time. It's always great to catch up with you. I appreciate all the many ways you've supported me throughout my career, and I look forward to our paths crossing at some point, hopefully in the not-too-distant future. Look forward to it, Greg. We'll see you in spring training. Look forward to it. We talk so much about the Atlanta Braves and the results that we see on the field, all of the slugging accolades, the awards, the all-star honors, and everything else that made up this Braves club for much of the past six years as they've won the National League East in six consecutive seasons. But the success of the Braves goes far beyond simply what they do on the field. A lot of it is what happens behind the scenes. 
I had a chance to catch up with several Braves to talk about the impact of the culture of this team and how that's paid major dividends year after year. One of the things, though, that I think has made the Braves such a good team year over year is not just what they've built on the field, but it's also what they built behind the scenes. It's what they've built in that clubhouse. It's every man on that roster and the accountability one person to another that is hard to find and certainly hard to fabricate if you're another club. And I don't mean fabricate in the way of like you just make something up. I mean trying to assemble it, trying to put it all together. Think about how many clubs across baseball have gone through some version of a rebuild. We look at some teams, like the Pittsburgh Pirates, for example, that have been in a rebuild perpetually. The Oakland Athletics are another one, and they're not going to be in Oakland for very long, likely as a result, at least in part, of not being able to build a consistent winner year after year. Now, the fingerprints and the authors of what exactly the Braves have put together are many. This is not about one person's vision. It's not about one person's actions or doings. It has had a lot of different contributors to it, and it does start, I think, from a leadership perspective of being able to put a clear plan in place and have somebody go out and execute and bring in the right people. That's where Alex Anthopoulos comes in, and clearly he was handed a team that had had a restocked farm system that was done by the previous administration. John Coppolella, John Hart, the guys that were going out and trying to find these high-profile prospects, some of them maybe buying on the cheap if you're dealing with an injury or Maybe they lost a little bit of their shine, but either way, whether it was drafting, which the Braves did fairly well, whether it was signing international free agents uh, about a decade ago, guys like Ronald Acuna Jr., Ozzy Albies, that has played a part in this. And then, of course, the trades that you have made, the fact that some of these players in your system, and many of them have, graduated from top prospect status to become stars and contributors for your club, you start to look at this roster and you understand why they are who they are in the standings. We look at it on the field, and we're going to go through numbers, and we do on the show time and time again, week after week. You watch a baseball game day after day. You're typically talking about the numbers and what they mean and what the trends are and who is leading the league and all these different things, and the Braves have a lot of league leaders. Their offense as a whole is really a league-leading style of offense. On the pitching side, you've got Max Fried, and even though he's hurt right now, look at what he has done over the course of his career. Look at the emergence of Kyle Wright a year ago. Bringing in a Charlie Morton, a veteran who has seen a lot of different things and can provide a different voice and a different look on that rotation. Then Spencer Strider explodes onto the scene. Once again, a player who graduated from the Braves minor league system and has become a star at the big league level. And we've got another success story in Bryce Elder already this season. Those are just a few, and that's just on the pitching side. I mentioned Ronald Acuna Jr. I mean, it's an MVP candidate. It's not a surprise that the Braves are who they are on the field, I guess is what I'm saying. But what I was interested to talk to about with several Braves over the course of the last few weeks is what makes it so special to be an Atlanta Brave, to play in Atlanta, to be a part of this team. So I wanted to get a few different voices, some who've been here for the entirety of this five-year run of success that the Braves have had, others who have just kind of come along and fit in and played their part and maybe exceeded any expectation that you could have had of them in some cases. And so I just started with a nice free agent acquisition, and you heard part of this discussion last week. Travis Darnot has become, I think, a leader behind the plate for the pitching staff. He he makes all the contributions you need in the lineup as well, he's become an all-star and a silver slugger. But for him, talking about what it is that makes the Braves who they are behind the scenes in that clubhouse, I thought was an interesting conversation to have, so take a listen. 
You've been a part of this team since 2020. There have been, you know, obviously baseball, there's changes, new faces each and every year. But this club seems to have a camaraderie, a consistency, a chemistry, that probably quite a few nice adjectives that you can describe it as that a lot of other teams would very much like to have. What do you notice or what can you single out about the leadership that starts from the top of the organization to the coaching staff to also accountability man-to-man here in this clubhouse that makes this such a special place to play? Well, first it starts with double A. He learned that clubhouse environment is the most important thing. Uh, He's told me because when times are bad, if you have a good clubhouse, you're able to recover a lot quicker than if you have a clubhouse full of not so good people. So not only that, he also built a coaching staff who believes in the same thing. They're all great people. They all are in great attitudes all the time. They all understand this game and how there's ups and downs, how it's all about just trying to be the same every single day, get your work done, and um, try to win every series and not try to overcomplicate things. And then in the clubhouse, you know, we got a, a good a good mix of people. We got the young guys, the vets. We got people who will uh, lead lead by what they do and what they show. And then we got show leaders who are vocal. So we got a good collective group of good guys who will keep you accountable. Who you can learn from anybody, and it's it's pretty special. And thankful to be a part of it. What do you feel like the tone is that's set from, say, Brian Snitker and his coaching staff? I know you've played for a few different managers, and obviously different guys come from different backgrounds and whatnot, but is there something in particular about his style and maybe his belief in his players that really helps translate into the winning attitude and culture you guys have? He's very calm. He he gets the best out of each player. He gets you to laugh, doesn't overcomplicate things. Um, he's very open, very straightforward. I think... Uh, it's a great quality in a manager, especially in the big leagues, especially in a team that's won for five years in a row. It's, you know, he, he doesn't try to micromanage. He trusts in his coaches, which is also a rare thing. It's pretty special. He always says hello, always asks how your family's doing, which is another really important thing, and it just makes you feel good all the time. It's He's someone you want to play for and someone you want to lay everything out there for. That's Braves veteran catcher Travis Darno, who I caught up with this past week. A couple of lockers over from him, you'll find a relative newcomer to the Atlanta Braves. Yeah, he's been here for a minute, and yes, the story around his acquisition was one of the biggest storylines we've had in the Braves' run of success because you had to replace a franchise icon. Freddie Freeman is gone. We've had that discussion. Matt Olson is here. The reasons why Matt Olson are here, when you look in the lineup, you're going to get an indication of that on a day-to-day basis. But fitting in with this club, having an opportunity to create a sustainable long-term winner and signing a long-term contract, those are all things and reasons why the Braves invested in Matt Olson. And Matt Olson signed up to be a Brave for a very long time. But when it comes to the leadership and the tone that is set for this team, not only does it start with Alex Anthopoulos, as Travis Darno mentioned, but Inside that clubhouse, in that dugout, on that field, you're going to get a lot from this Braves coaching staff. Here's my conversation with Matt Olson. I know you haven't played for a lot of different clubs and a lot of different managers, but coming over here to the Braves, being in your second year with Brian Snitker and this coaching staff, what kind of consistency did they, I guess, ingrain into this team and the everyday approach? Yeah, I mean, you talk to Snit, he's about as uh, even keel as you can find, so he kind of sets the tone for us. Um, Snit expects you to show up and be ready to do your job that day. I think for guys that are kind of the everyday guys in the lineup, you know you're playing. There's, I think that's a great thing we do here. you can't help the team from the bench, so um, you know you show up. You're playing, you know, majority of the time. Most of, no matter how you're doing, that next day could be you know your day to, to get right if you're not doing well, or or to you know carry the team if you're, if you're hot that day. Or um, and I think he does a great job of, of you know setting the tone of every day's new. We're not going to get up 
two up, two down. Just keep playing our games and, and see where we're at then. Across the diamond from Matt Olson is Austin Riley, a man who went from a red-hot prospect to fighting for an everyday job to becoming an all-star and helping the Braves win the World Series, and then last year, signing the biggest contract in franchise history. So I wanted to ask Austin Riley, what is so special about being an Atlanta Brave, and what is so special about what these guys have, one man to another, in this clubhouse? And here's what Austin had to say. The leadership from the coaching staff, from Brian Snitker to Ron Washington, Cranny, Sites, whoever it may be, what does that do for this team in terms of helping you guys maintain such a steady course that there just don't seem to be highs and lows that ever overtake this club? You know, it starts with, to me, from from Alex, who he brings in, to Snit, to all of them. I mean, Wash, everybody. I mean, I think everybody kind of has that same mentality of, you know, you're going to go through your ebbs and flows of 162. It's just a matter of, you know, how level-headed you can be through the, all of that. And then, you know, Snit always says, he's like, we're going to come out and play every day and see where we're at at the end of this thing. I think there's something to to be said about that. When you, I feel like sometimes whenever things aren't going so well, you try to fix things versus it's a game of failure. Let's just continue to work every day. You know, you're going to go through those stretches. It's just a matter of how you handle them. I think, you know, keeps you out of them as long as, you know, other teams or whatever you want to put it on. Um, I just think that there is no panic ever from top to bottom, and guys just trust each other. This club has been part of something very special in your young career here. Obviously, a lot of years left to be played. A lot of other teams spend a lot of money and go out and get a lot of other players to try to build something like the Braves have. What is it like to be part of this every day? I feel very fortunate. You know, in my short time, I've been on some really good teams. Um, and I think, you know, just learning from guys that were here before me, guys like, you know, Freddie, guys like Brian, the guys that have been here when never there wasn't, you know, good teams, right. Dansby, and just how they carry themselves, how they, you know, approach the game. Um, I feel like you can just learn so much from, from guys like that. And then, you know, just, I don't know, it's, it's God's blessed me. I, I, that's the only thing I can really think about. I just, God's put me in a spot that, you know, very fortunate and, and you know, try and just um, not take it for granted. Austin Riley is one of the many success stories for the Braves. He's a success story for a Braves draftee, a prospect, a guy earning an everyday job and becoming a franchise fixture. But there are guys in that clubhouse that have come from all kinds of different backgrounds, many different countries, different teams, trades, free agent signings, you name it. The Braves have somebody that represents that particular demographic of the world of baseball. Tyler Matzik was pretty much on the scrap heap. He was pitching independent ball. He was trying to get his career back on track after losing his command, his focus, his ability to throw strikes as a pitcher, and dealing with some injuries with the Colorado Rockies. The Braves rolled the dice on him late in the minor league season in 2019. He became a part of the bullpen in 2020, went to the postseason with Atlanta. Then, of course, he was part of the night shift and provided us with one of the best highlights in Braves franchise history, in my humble estimation, I was there at Truist Park when Tyler Matzik was mowing down the Dodgers in Game 6 of the 2021 NLCS. I will never forget that moment. But the path to get to that moment and the ability to rise to that moment, I think it all is kind of born with the culture that the Braves have that helps them win on the field. Here's what Tyler Matzik shared with me about what it is that makes it special to be part of this Atlanta Braves team and how it is they continue to do the things that they do. 
this is a club, what I think is kind of one of the bright notes of this team. You've been around it since, what, 2020. Mm-hmm. You've seen different you know, faces and changes for this team. But one thing that I think a lot of people in baseball recognize is the Braves have built something very special here yeah. with the men inside this clubhouse, with what you guys have done on the field, clearly the successes that you've had. What do you feel leads to that, lends to that? What are some of the aspects of it that make this, A, such a great place to play, and B, the level of camaraderie and accountability that you guys seem to have? We all just enjoy hanging out with each other. That's like the first thing. You know, Alex has done a great job of, you know, finding, uh, you know, I think first off, good people, and then second, good baseball players. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when you when you want to hang out with your teammates, you want to um, you, you want to win for your teammates, you tend to go out there and do just a little bit more than you could possibly think you could do. And, um, you know, I think that that brotherhood, that camaraderie that we have has allowed us all to perform better on the field. And, and we got a good good thing going because of it. A big part of that clearly can be from the trend or the tone that's set, not just from the Alex Anthopoulos, you know, higher upside, but also the coaching staff here. Mm-hmm. A lot of experience in baseball here. And I think that, you know, from a guidance standpoint, that has to be a, a big, not even an X factor for this team, but a big factor for this team. Yeah, I know. I mean, I mean, Snit, for example, is a, he's a steady rudder, man. He keeps us going right where we need to be. Um, points us in the right direction, and then the guys just start rowing, this kind of thing. So, you know, he doesn't panic. He doesn't stress out. He's very calm. He understands it's a long season. He's been in baseball for so long that he, he kind of keeps that boat going, and he just tells us to row, and we just keep doing what we're doing, and we love doing it. Yeah. Do you feel like that kind of mentality and that temperament lends itself to just about everybody else? If that's the direction the team's headed, it seems like a pretty good one. Yeah, exactly. You know, and I think it's, um, you know, we're kind of proving that it's working and we're playing well, and yeah, we just want to keep doing that. I want to wrap up with the man himself, Brian Snitker, who I talked to a couple of weeks ago because I wanted to get his input. And he's not always going to, and in fact, he's never going to tap his chest and you know say that this is what I've done or this is what we've done under my leadership. He is way, way, way too humble for that. And he knows that on a club, everyone is playing a part. And I do think he's a steady hand that guides the ship. And he allows his players to do the things that they are there to do. He gives them the ability to do it, but he expects accountability in the way that they do it. So I wanted to know from his perspective how it is the Braves have built something so special in Atlanta, winning five consecutive National League East titles, winning a World Series, eyeing more in the future. Here's what Snit had to say. A lot of teams spend a lot of time and a lot of money to bring in players and create a culture, a winner, all of those kinds of things. When it comes to your club, with the coaching staff that you have, with where you are, and with, I guess, maybe player accountability, where do you feel like all of those things just kind of maybe come together? Because it just seems like there's such a cohesive unit for this team that's there year after year, even if some of the faces change. You know, it takes a, a while to create that and, and to get that feeling, which is, is I, I think it counts for a lot of the success that the teams have. And because um, you can now, you can go outside and you don't maybe have to, target that perfect individual because they're going to come in and, and you can get it maybe get a guy that's a little rough around the edges and and bring him into this atmosphere and they'll adapt because it's good they enjoy being on in that in that atmosphere and that um, in that clubhouse in there so i think it you know starts from i think the core of your guys are just really good people and then their makeup is really good they're doing it for all the right reasons So I hope you enjoyed that look and that insight from inside the Braves clubhouse from several Atlanta Braves from Brian Snitker himself on one of the things that I think we kind of talk about, but maybe gloss over a lot in the name of the numbers. And that is 
these 26 men, whoever they are on the active roster at a time, really, you could probably expand it to the whole 40-man roster and the player development and the executive office and wing at Truist Park. And, of course, that coaching staff, everybody is, as Tyler Matzik said, all grabbing an oar and rowing in the same direction to make this thing happen. As I mentioned, there was a bit of a changing of the guard in the broadcast booth on the television side for the Atlanta Braves. We've already heard from Chip Carey here on this edition of the show, but I also had a chance to sit down with Brandon Gauden. The new voice of the Braves had quite a memorable first season, and it was a lot of fun to get his reflections on 2023. Brandon, it has been an exciting 2023 season for the Atlanta Braves, and that might even be selling it short. I know you and I both grew up watching this team, and this is a club that's done a lot of winning over the course of the last, what, 30 years now. But the 2023 club... Your first year behind the microphone for this team. I would imagine that they have provided a few memories thus far and maybe quite a few more they'll be providing before it's all said and done. I hope so. Yeah, I've used the word spoiled a lot, and I think it's the right word. To step into this role for me, as you said, a lifelong fan, was going to be a dream no matter what. If this team was 20 games below 500 and out of playoff contention, I still promise you I would be enjoying this gig. But to have a team that is truly doing historic things has made it extra special. And I think back to just what we saw, Ronald Acuna getting a 40-70 season, and the way that he did it, the stolen base number 70 being so important, to set up the Ozzy Albies game winner, this place going nuts. It felt like October, and it's not October yet, but it felt like that. It just kind of typified what this team has done all year and just kind of keeps us smiling. Yeah, I felt like that was a microcosm of Ron Lacuna Jr.'s season. I don't want to waste our time talking about an MVP debate because I feel like we've been watching the MVP every day, and that doesn't mean nobody else has a case. But let's key in on Ron a little bit, and then we'll kind of get to some of the other records that this team is capable of setting or has set by the time they're all said and done here in the 162. But I knew coming into this season, and I felt like it was going to be a special year for Ronald because 2022 just didn't look like the player that we were accustomed to, and you could tell the knee was still a thing. But a 100% healthy Ronald Acuna Jr., whose goal to play every single day, and while he may not have you know, been able to make that goal, he's come pretty close to, I think, removing all doubt about the player that he is, the player that he can be, and he's only 25 years old. So there's a lot of excitement wrapped up in this season that goes so far beyond 40-70, which is history in and of itself. Yeah, it is, and I, I think you're right. Look, last year, when I got to spring training this year and I was meeting everybody, the thing that I heard consistently was – Ronald was not full last year. And we had heard that throughout certain reports and so forth, that yes, he was there and he was putting up good numbers, but it wasn't Ronald Acuna Jr. and what he was capable of. And I think now we're seeing that this year, that last year he was not 100%. And this is full 100% Ronald Acuna. And it's not only good, it's scary good. And I totally get, and I know you and you provide all this stuff to your followers, so these numbers and things, but I get that Mookie Betts is having an amazing year. And in most years, Mookie Betts is the Mm -hmm. MVP. Ronald Acuna is the MVP this year. And if for some reason he's not, I think that that's a really big mistake. Heck, I think in most years, Matt Olson is the MVP. I think that Matt Olson setting the Braves' single season franchise record in homers right on the doorstep of doing that in runs driven in, all while hitting above 280. That is such a good year. And to think that he's going to finish probably third in the MVP race is just crazy. But, yeah, what Ronald has done, you know, we we talked about how he's the fifth member of the 40-40 club on air the other day. And then you go through and look. 
no one in that club though ever had 50 stolen bases right and you look at all of Ricky Henderson's homers but he or stolen bases but he never came close to the home run total so for someone to be able to marry both of those together and not only that but hit for average right to go along with the power and the speed and everything that he brings to the table uh, he's a generational talent and you said he's 25 that's very exciting to think about yeah, 25, and he's going to be here for quite a while, the rest of his 20s, and maybe beyond that. But we'll get to that down the line. I'm sure Alex Antopoulos will work on figuring all that out. You brought up Matt Olson, and I think as we know that this club is more than just one hitter. It's more than just one player. The sum of all the parts here could set a major league record for most home runs ever hit in a single season, and we're not talking about a juice ball year either. We're talking about one where they are so far out and ahead of everyone else in Major League Baseball Matt Olson's a major contributor to that. He broke Andrew Jones' single-season home run record. This may be the quietest 50 home run season that I can think of, and I know we had a lot of excitement with 50, 60, 70 home runs about 20 or so years ago, but this kind of season, as you pointed out, this usually garners some pretty serious MVP credentials or some MVP support. Let's call it that. Yeah, I agree. I think Matt Olson, maybe why it's a quiet 50 homer season is because Matt's a really quiet and humble guy, and you don't want to say that we only give attention to people who are flashy, but sometimes we do. And I, do, I think that Matt, and, and some of it's just that Ronald has been so good that Matt has simply been overshadowed. But I truly think that if you ask Matt on a lie detector test, if he cares at all that he's not getting the attention that he deserves, he doesn't. He just, that's just right. who he is. He's just, he's just a good, humble guy. There's a reason he is the Braves nominee for the Roberto Clemente Award, which I hope that he wins. He certainly is very deserving. He does a lot of work with charities off the field, and he's just a good-hearted, good-natured guy. And the fact that he's a very good baseball player is also nice. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, what, what he's done this year has been fantastic. And just on the home run mark quickly, you, you said it. 2019, you look at the top. People talk a lot about the Twins that set the record mm-hmm. that year with three in 2019 some people forget the Yankees had 306 that year and everybody's individual record for home runs pretty much came in 2019 across Major League Baseball there's a reason for that the seams were raised the baseball was call it juice whatever you want to call it if this Braves lineup was hitting with those 2019 baseballs they would have already flown (laughs) past 307 who knows they may be close to 400 if that were the case there's some crazy stats that I've seen about Ron Lacuna Jr., about the Braves, their hard hit rates, all of those things. And one of the things that I saw this week, which is crazy, and then we can move on from the Ron Lacuna Jr. discussion altogether, but he might be one of the unluckiest hitters in baseball, just based on what his expected stats are, because he hits the ball so hard so frequently. But to take that and kind of push it into the Braves as a whole, leading Major League Baseball in average, in hits, in home runs, in OPS, doing all of these things. And the most impressive thing to me about it, and I know you watch this on a regular basis, but the Braves last year were second in Major League Baseball in strikeouts. They have been around 25th over the course of this year. Ron Lacuna Jr. has gone from a guy who struck out almost 30% of the time in 2020 to a guy who's striking out just under 12% of the time. It's truly amazing the metamorphosis of this entire club. So 300 home runs, yeah, I think they would have got there in 2019. Maybe they would have been knocking on the door 400 home runs. Yeah, and I think you can go up and down the Braves lineup with that strikeout rate, and it's it's Ronald, yes, he's cut it down a lot. You look just within this season. I think Matt Olson, uh, when he was batting second in the order, he was striking out around 30% of the time. You move him down, and all of a sudden, I think it's 17 or 18% yeah. since that move 
move in mid-June. And then you look at a guy like Michael Harris. Last year he hit 238 versus lefties. This year he's hitting almost 300 against lefties. There have been adjustments by these guys where it, you know, we say it all the time on air, it's the balance of the lineup and they can get you one through nine, unlike any lineup in Major League Baseball, and it's true. But when you look at what each guy has done to make an adjustment to make himself a better hitter in 2023 versus 2022, it's pretty staggering. It's it's just it is in my time watching baseball, and I'm coming up on 40. Yes, I'm biased. I think it's the best lineup that I've seen. I know that there's been some really good ones. We've seen some really good ones. But top to bottom, it's hard to argue against the power and the average of this Braves lineup. No, it truly is. It's a well-rounded group. Let me talk a little bit about the lineup that you have been a part of this year. Your first year, as we talked about, behind the mic for the Braves. How much fun has it been to sit alongside Jeff Francoeur on a nightly basis or a regular basis, Tom Glavin, John Smoltz, some of the guys that have come through, the Peter Moylans, Nick Green, whoever it is, You know, it's just such a great team. How much fun have you guys had? Uh, being able to, A, come to work and call a baseball game, which I think is still maybe the greatest job ever next to play in the sport, but also have fun watching this team. Yeah, I think fun is the right word. You know, before I got this job, whether I was doing baseball or football or basketball, anytime you step into a booth and you get to be a part of a sporting event, I always tell myself, even if you're having a bad day, remember that people are watching that are trying to release from whether it's being a lawyer, being an accountant, digging a ditch, whatever it is, they want to have fun. Yeah. And I want to try to be a part of that fun with them. And certainly this team has made it easy, but the team that you mentioned that we get to work with every night, those guys are awesome. I mean, nobody has more fun in this world than Jeff Francoeur. <laughs> and you saw that from him as a player, mm-hmm. but he's just that way. He's so positive. He's so energetic. He's hilarious. So having him next to me for most of these games has really been a thrill. I think it's also helped, you know, you're around our age too. He and I are born two weeks apart. And so we just have a lot of things in common. Now he has four kids. I don't have any, so that's different. But the things that make us laugh, the silly humor, the way that we see the game is very similar. That's been a joy. And then getting to work with Tom and Smoltzy, for me, you know, you grew up a Braves fan too. I had to pinch myself a little bit, yeah. man. I mean, I did. I Stepping into the booth for the first time with those guys, like, holy cow, these are the guys that I grew up idolizing on the field throughout the 90s. And to get to call this game with them while we watch our beloved Braves, uh, incredibly special. And then, you know, Peter Peter has grown so much and is just tremendous. And he has that same sense of humor mm-hmm. as Nick, every, or as Jeff, everywhere we go someone stops Peter. Like, Peter, I love you. Peter, I mean, he is kind of this local celebrity because he is such a positive, energetic guy. And then Nick is tremendous. And he's so good on the desk, but he's really coming into his own in the booth. So, yeah, uh, earlier I said spoiled to kind of be following this team, but really, honestly, to have the the crew that we work with, both on air and the crew in the truck, headed up by Gretchen and Mike, our producer and director. Just really lucky. Just really lucky to have the team we do. Brandon, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it as always. Absolutely. Absolutely, Grant. Thanks for having me, man. Well, as we know, the October story for the Braves was not as sweet in 2023 as it was a couple of years ago. And now Atlanta is in the business of trying to make this club a little bit better. We opened the whole show talking about the latest Braves trade, bringing over Chris Sale from the Boston Red Sox. You stack that on to all of the bullpen arms they've brought in, the trade for Jared Kelnick, and so many other deals that have been going on this winter. And you can tell that the Braves are busy trying to make this club just a little bit better. And when you think about a team that won 104 games and led Major League Baseball in victories a year ago, that should be a pretty scary proposition for the rest of the sport. December is the annual baseball winter meetings, and I was up in Nashville where the rest of the baseball world assembled 
Hoping to see Atlanta continue its busy winter over the course of that week and also catching up with Alex Anthopoulos and with Braves manager Brian Snitker. With many of the moves made this winter already completed, I chatted with the Braves manager about how things are going this offseason and what's ahead for his club with spring training right around the corner. Here at the winter meetings with Braves manager Brian Snitker, and as uh, I think we are just chatting about everybody knows, once you get to the winter meetings, it's kind of, I think, an unofficial halfway point maybe of the winter. How's everything been so far, and how much are you looking forward to seeing how the team takes shape in the additions that can come this winter, of which we'll talk about a few of those? No, it's it's great. You know what? You kind of get back in the baseball mode when you get to the winter meetings, and, and um, you know, these winters, they go by fast. I mean, we'll look up, and, you know, it's like as soon as the Super Bowl's over, we're ready to start playing baseball. So, um, but it's busy. I mean, there's always something going on and, and with the family responsibilities and the industry responsibilities. And, and um, you know what? You wouldn't change a thing. So it, it's a, always exciting. Um, I think all the guys, myself included, are going to be, you know, you always look forward to getting spring training and, and getting getting everything rolling. And, and um, I don't think this year will be any different. Well, before you get there, Alex Antopoulos and his crew were busy shopping throughout the course of the winter. And he's done a lot. The Braves have been one of the most active teams over the course of the winter. And, of course, other teams will do their thing as well. But as you look Looked at the pieces that were coming in, whether it was Ronaldo Lopez bringing back Pierce Johnson and Joe Jimenez, and of course the trade for Jared Kelnick, which we can get into a little bit more in a minute. But this bullpen, especially, seems to be what has been a strength for this club, maybe even stronger in 2024. No, it is, and we know how important that is. I think Alex is very aware of that. You know, you, you forget about a guy like Bummer yep. that we brought in from the White Sox, and like I say, over the years we know how important that bullpen is. Having good pieces, um, a lot of bullpen depth, where you can kind of get everybody through the long season. And, and um, I think it's huge. I think what Alex does, he's always on the lookout to try and make this club better. Does a great job of it and, and getting those young talent like uh, the kids from the Mariners that we got the other day. I was a very talented young man. I'll be anxious to see him. All those guys. I mean, you, you look forward. That kind of makes the spring training exciting when, when you bring new players in. You see the growth of your young prospect guys like an A.J. Smith-Sharver and, yeah. and guys like that. Cause they're you know, they're going to continue to improve and get better with experience. I'll ask you a little bit about Renault. Ronaldo Lopez, a guy you've seen for a number of different teams for a number of different years. He has had some starting experience in the past, but he's also had a lot of success in the bullpen. Are you kind of excited to see where he fits in that? I mean, I know the winter shopping could also be a factor in where he fits. No, it is. And, and you know what? We'll get through spring training. We'll probably stretch him out as a starter, and then we'll see at the end of spring training where he fits. Um, uh, you know, I, I love the fact that we got that guy. I, I remember watching him. He pitched against us. I remember watching him on TV. This guy's got an electric arm, um, versatility, like you said. And um, we'll just see. You know what? That's why we use spring training, you know, that we, we get these guys ready. And then at the end of spring training, we kind of put everything together and see where they fit. You talked a little bit this morning already about Jared Kelnick, a guy that you said is a tooled-up kid, a lot of talent, and obviously is a, you know, players' change of scenery can also be a big thing because a new organization, a new set of eyes, and maybe new method, new process that could help him unlock something. How excited are you to see how he fits in with the Atlanta Braves? Very much so. You're always excited when you get young, talented players, and, and this is a kid I think he'll he'll thrive in our system and being around our guys and and the staff and, and, the, and the players that we have. I think it's, he's got to be excited about coming in into our organization, what we got going on. I think we do a lot of things differently than a lot of people. And, and um, I think when you, like I said, you get a young, talented guy in, and it's always exciting. We talked a little bit already about what the Braves have done over the course of the winter to this point. Again, been one of the most active teams in Major League Baseball. As you look at the roster, I know you're happy with the talent that you've got. Are there any areas that you're kind of anxious to see what else? 
else Alex might add to this mix? No, I, I don't know any areas. I mean, it's always kind of fun to see what Alex has up his sleeve. And, and um, you know, I just I wake up every morning and look online, see if, we, if we've done anything, you know. So um, I, I, I just said if we, if we went to spring training tomorrow, I'd be really happy with the group that we have and, and feel like we're going to, you know, contend for another division title. I want to ask you a little bit about Spencer Strider. He's a guy that, while I know that the National League Division Series did not go the way that you guys wanted it to, if there was any question about what he's capable of and what kind of performances he can put on when the stage is bright, how much did he show you this October by going out, taking the ball, and really being a bulldog? No, he, he's, I think everything that Spencer went through this year, he's going to build on. Um, you know, and he's another one that is, nobody's going to out-prepare him. Nobody's going to outwork him. Um, he's so dedicated to his craft and, and consistent in what he does, and he knows himself, and I think the more he pitches, the better he's going to get. And, and I think the, you know, the that playoff experience is invaluable. I mean, the only way to get it is to be in it. And, and um, I think, you know, he'll just continue to build on everything that he's done up to this point. A couple of questions about managers. One is beginning his career in Stephen Vogt, who played for you not yeah. long ago in 2021, was a member of the World Series team. I think that he said a lot of managers kind of pulled the curtain back for him a little bit, knowing that he might have his own aspirations of doing this one day. How excited are you for him? And how much do you think he's going to bring to what Cleveland is looking for? Oh, no, I'm so excited. I can't stop hugging him when I see him here in, in the <laughs> Hall. I just saw him a little bit ago. He, he's built for this. I mean, I, I looked at him when he played for us as a future manager. He's just one of those guys that gets it. Um, he's a professional. Um, I, I'll be so excited to see him on the other side of the of the field. You know, when we play the Indian or the. Really? Guardians. Guardians. Yeah, sorry. Um, but I'm really happy for Steven. I mean, because he's, like I say, he's one of those guys when you have him that it's like, you know what, this guy's built for that. So yeah. he's, he's going to do a great job. Yeah, it, I think it takes a different breed. And a man who was on the other end of that spectrum wrapped up what is now a Hall of Fame career in Jim Leland. Longtime baseball fans and Braves fans, very familiar with Jim from the battles yeah. with the Pirates, but also he went on to win the World Series with the Marlins and now a Hall of Fame career. How excited were you to see him get that call? Very much so. I mean, um, I've really enjoyed getting to know Jimmy at, you know, when I got this job, even before I got this job. I always loved, used to love when we played the Tigers in spring training to kind of nuzzle up to him and talk to him. And, and he's a baseball guy. You know, I text him as soon as I, I found that and he got right back to me. So um, I'm, I'm so excited that a guy like that is rewarded for um, decades of, of just, you know, being a great baseball man. So um, couldn't have him to a better guy. Let me wrap up with this one. I know it's the winter. A lot of folks are doing what we're doing, kind of gathering here in Nashville, maybe looking forward to spring training. The National League MVP, Ronald Acuna Jr., decided he wants to play some more baseball. He's down starring in Venezuela. Is it, I don't know if encouraging is the word or exciting to see the fact that this kid just seems to really love playing the game of baseball and doing so at a high level and just getting himself prepared for whatever the encore is in 2024. No, I mean, he just he's a ball player, and he loves playing baseball. It, it's like I say, he doesn't get tired. He gets sleepy, you know, so... <laughs> Um, it, it's just it's great for him and I think he'll you know he's going to be smart about it and what he does and how much he plays and the whole thing and you know it's hard to tell a guy can't play baseball when he loves doing it like that and I'm sure everybody in Venezuela loves I'm sure they're packing that place every time he plays a game so um, you know what he, he'll he'll come to spring training in great shape and probably like I said the, the, a lot of the records that he broke he might be the only guy that can break them so um, it'll be fun watching him again this year he is that good I lied I got to ask you one more question because you had several coaches that moved on to 
new places, and I know you're excited for them and looking forward to filling those vacancies with very capable replacements. But just from a 30,000-foot view, as you look at what Ron Washington meant to this club, him getting that managerial opportunity in addition to EY going with him, and then Drew French, of course, getting an opportunity in Baltimore. How excited are you to see those guys grow and move on? No, it's great. I, and I told Alex, I said, that's the price you pay when you're successful is people want your people. So I'm excited for Wash that he can, you know, he's wanted this, I think, in his uh, career. EY, Drew did a great job for us. I mean, really watched him grow, and and, and he's ready for this uh, ready for this challenge. So I'm happy, really happy for all three of them. And, and um, you know, I'll be excited for the three guys that we give opportunities to to replace them. Braves manager Brian Snitker, great to see you at the winter meetings. Thank you for all your time and look forward to chatting with you again soon. All right. Thanks, Grant. Always great to catch up with the Braves skipper, Brian Snitker, and I appreciate his time and the time of all my guests throughout the year. It was a lot of fun talking Braves baseball and following these stories as they unfolded, and we'll be doing it all again in 2024. I hope you enjoyed that look back at what was a big and memorable season for the Atlanta Braves. Even if it did not end up in another World Series parade, there's always the hopes, with spring training now just weeks away, that the Braves will start their journey towards October and another World Series title in the new year. As always, I hope you'll continue to support the show. Make sure you're subscribed wherever you get your podcasts. You can follow me on social media, most platforms. You can find me at Grant McCauley. And if you need links to anything I've got going on, from thediamond.com is the place for that. With that, it'll wrap up the final From the Diamond of 2023. Again, thanks for riding along all season long. I hope you have a very happy and prosperous new year, and I will catch you in 2024. Until then, so long, everyone. <laughs>